He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, July 10, 2021. This show is about Heidi Thomas, a Colorado kid who got raped by Bill Cosby. I take that personally, and I've made the acquaintance of Heidi, and she has graced me with her presence many times before on the air. This is the way the Pennsylvania Supreme Court wrote about Heidi, in their recent appellate opinion, reversing Cosby's conviction, not because of Heidi Thomas, but because of things we will discuss on the show with Heidi Thomas and one of the prosecutors, Stu Ryan, in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. In 1984, Heidi Thomas wanted to be an actress and a model. Her agent told her that Cosby was looking to mentor a promising young talent. Eventually, Cosby invited Thomas to Reno for some personal acting lessons. Thomas believed that she would be staying at a hotel, but when she got to Reno, a car took her to a ranch house where Cosby was staying. Cosby arranged a room in the house for her. When they were the only two people left in the house, Cosby asked Thomas to audition for him by pretending to be an intoxicated person, which she explained to Cosby would be a challenge for her because she had never been intoxicated. Cosby asked how she could play such a role without ever having had that experience, so he gave her some wine. Thomas drank only a little of the wine before becoming extremely intoxicated. She faded in and out of consciousness. At one point, she came to on a bed only to find Cosby forcing his penis into her mouth. She passed out and awoke later feeling sick. That's in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision. They talked about the other rape victims of Bill Cosby who got to testify, and they never said whether that was okay or not because they threw out the case for another reason, which we get into on the show. Due process violated... Bill Cosby made a promise by former Montgomery County DA Bruce Castor. I wrote about it in the Colorado Sun, but it impacts real people like Heidi Thomas. She's overcome all this, and she's got a great career. Music is therapy. You know I believe in that. Dave Gunder is my troubadour, our troubadour. He's got a great song this week called Some Days. About some days can start off bad. And June 30th was a bad day for Heidi Thomas when the Cosby conviction got reversed. But she will overcome. And so will the other victims. Everybody reacts differently. Wait till you hear the reaction of Heidi Thomas, followed by Stu Ryan, one of the prosecutors of Cosby. That's right, one of the Pennsylvania prosecutors. We've got great guests starting with Heidi Thomas. Here she is. 
Heidi Thomas, thank you for coming to my studio. You are known, unfortunately, because you were victimized by a serial criminal, but I know you as an outstanding professional. Thank you. A wonderful mother, a role model for people of all kind. Thank you. I am proud of you, Heidi, and it's so good to get to know you better in the wake of the Cosby reversal. Let's tell everybody about your roots. What state are you from? I am a Colorado native, born, bred, and proud. You and me both. Yeah, baby. And you know, that's kind of cool. I'm fourth generation. I don't know how far back you go, but you really don't get that many more generations back because Colorado's... <laughs> it's not that uh, old. It's not that old. <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed. How you're, far back do you go? You're fourth generation. I'm, I'm first. My dad is from Chicago. Mom's a Nebraska farm girl. So my sister and I are the first generation in Colorado. But four generations, were your folks pioneers? I don't know. They went to West High School, East High School. I think uh, their parents did as well. Well, my, they all went to West, the old West side. But this isn't about me. Tell us where you grew up. I am a, what well, it's now centennial, but at the time it was all Littleton and it's, you know, it's kind of boomed to the point it's now two different cities. But I'm a Littleton High graduate and so, yeah, go Lions, anybody out there. And I went to the University of Denver. Um, so I am about as Colorado as they come. I grew up with um, the mountains, skiing, backpacking, camping, four-wheel driving. I mean, all of that stuff, that's what our family did. And, and that's that's me. I wish it was me now. I don't do nearly enough. But that's it, me too. Yeah. What do you think about all the changes in Denver? You just went through the oh, traffic gosh, getting yeah. over here to my studio. and I It's I don't understand it. I don't like it. But people come here to visit. They either come to ski or they come, you know, they come to visit friends and people fall in love with it. And why wouldn't they? I mean, Colorado is the perfect place to live. It has everything. And and unfortunately, people come here and figure it out and then they want to move here and right. now and booming put population and building boom and traffic jams. And so come visit, but you don't have to live here. Yeah, but what if your parents took that attitude or somebody said that to them? I know, I know. Tell us it's about that hippoc- love story, your parents. My parents. Oh, bless your heart. Uh, mom and dad. Mom is... She came out here from the farm, as I understand it. The, my family is so optimistic, they often just don't tell the whole story, and we have to kind of piece things together. But I think she came out here for a combination of maybe some health issues that they just couldn't figure out when she was a teenager um, back, you know, in a Nebraska farming community, and they needed the doctors in a Send big... Her to altitude. Right, or something. That's exactly why my dad was sent here. When he was like 10 or 11, he had asthma in Chicago, and his parents were told, get him up to Colorado, and he's never looked back. I mean, here's this guy climbing 14ers, you know? Never looked back. So interesting, they were both here as young teenagers, like 11, 12, 13, something like that, for some health issues. But then, um, you know, took it and ran. Mom ended up, mom is also a musician, but she had a broadcasting background after she also went to the University of Denver. And she was on, at the time, it was KBTV Channel 9. And she was um, 
remember back in the day they had like Merv Griffin and those they were sure. they were like talk shows but they were also talent so maybe the host would sing a song kind of like today's you know instead of doing a comedy monologue at the beginning of your show back then the host would sing or they'd play or they'd whatever their talent was so she had that kind of a thing she had a children's program called Jill and Jerry Jerry was a puppet giraffe so that was kind of along the lines of a Sherry Lewis and you know lamb chop kind Can of a you thing remember Fred Fred and Faye Fred and Faye she knew them Absolutely. Yeah. Now that's old Denver. That's you, old. You, my dad went to the University of Denver. Really? Right after World War II. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. And so maybe they were classmates. Oh, well, I'm, maybe, I, mean, my, I don't know if you want to put that on air, but I'd ask her in a heartbeat. That would be amazing. Sure. Sheldon is my dad's name. And so you might ask about that because I, I think they'd be about the same age. Probably. Here. Your mom is how old? She's 91. Your dad's 97, though. Well, no? he's passed away now. Oh, 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 no, sorry. He, no, that that's uh, my troubadours. Uh, oh, that's father. right. That's what everybody That's no, right. My, my dad passed away, but I'm just thinking he'd be about 91, and your dad is still alive. Tell us about your dad. What's his oh, name? What's her name? Mel and Greta Lee Johnson. Hi, Mom and Dad. Dad just turned 94, and this is wild. The day Cosby was released from prison. It was a bit of a day in our family. Tell us about it, because some days are better than others. (laughs) We have those days. And I know you've got a piece of music, speaking of which, that addresses that. I can't wait to hear that. Um, On June 30th, 2021, I had spent the night at my parents' house. They are still in their home of, oh gosh, what would that be, 58 years uh, in Centennial, and I had spent the night because at 94 years old, Dad is in home hospice. He's got prostate cancer that has metastasized, and it's time to get him on some pretty heavy-duty pain stuff. So that's the part of life that we don't love, but it is part of life. So I had spent the night in anticipation of moving furniture, bringing in a hospital bed, you know, getting him comfortable. And a friend of mine who is a member of my church and a member of the media here in Denver had texted me on the morning of the 30th and asked how I was doing. And I assumed she was asking about how's dad, how's mom handling this, all of the personal stuff. And I said, well, you know, it's it's an interesting day and mom's doing okay. And dad, of course, is kind of oblivious. He does also have dementia. So, and And she got back to me and she said, oh... You haven't been able to see the news yet, have you? I said, no. And then she sent me the link from the Associated Press article about Cosby. And that's how I found out was over text from my friend the morning my dad is turning 94 and we're moving furniture and moving in a hospital bed and my mom is a little stressed out. And then, of course, my phone blows up with media interview requests and it was chaos has been for about a week was it even on your radar not even close no because i think it was within three weeks the in the past three weeks we the victims are all we, we the victims advocacy group there in pennsylvania has taken us all under their wing that's what they do and months ago they had sent us all a letter saying, Cosby will be up for parole. Do you have anything you'd like to 
you know, say, call in, write, whatever. We had a chance to say something about our feelings. And I had, of course, written a letter and said um, he's never acknowledged anything he did wrong. He has never participated in the, I I think they call it the Violent Sexual Offenders Program or something. It's, it's, It's a training and and a session that you a program you have to go through Um, i don't know if they can deprogram somebody like that but that's that's a condition of his parole and because he has always maintained his innocence he's never taken part so that was that was my point and i'm sure the the same feeling everybody else had and then we were given the word just in the last couple of weeks that in fact he was denied parole for that very reason, he has not accepted any right. form. He got of, a three to ten year sentence right. for raping Andrea Constant. You testified at the trial. Right, you were one of five similar bad offenses evidence against Cosby. So he got three to ten years, right. but his parole was denied. And I can tell you, even being in the business, when an appellate opinion drops, it's like whoa. You never know when they're coming. It's like a meteor hit. Absolutely. We, I mean, all of you, we knew the minute a jury said guilty on all three counts for Andrea's case, we all knew that attorneys, this is what they do. It's their job to say we're going to appeal and find how many ways they can appeal. So, of course, we knew that was going on. But quite honestly, not a single one of us thought there was any possibility. It was so so well handled by district attorney Kevin Steele and his team, which my husband and I dubbed the dream team, by the way. They were everything. They were professional. They were diligent. They were compassionate. They were, um, they are amazing people. We just, they, they had dotted every I and crossed every T and we just couldn't see any loophole that would allow any of these. Right. But we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> It was their predecessor. Right. A, a guy who, Stu Ryan, our guest, part of the dream team. Right. I can't wait. Do you know who, Hi, cross- <laughs> do you know who cross-examined Bruce Castor, the prior DA who screwed everything up? You know who did that? No. At the pre-trial proceeding? Who? Not Kevin Steele, but Stu Ryan. Oh, did he? And he'll talk about his encounter oh, with I can't wait. Bruce Castor. I know, but I'd like to know. I bet so many thoughts were running through your mind when your dad's turning 94, and I bet you thought about your dad, and I'm thinking about him right now, because if Cosby did that to my daughter, (laughs) I don't have a daughter, but I can imagine that your dad was not happy with that man. Craig, that's a really interesting point, because that's a major reason why I did not report or say anything for 30 years. And of course, that's everybody's question. Why didn't you say anything? Well, back in the day when I was contacted by my agent, and by in case anybody isn't familiar with this, my agent here in Denver was the one that set this all up. My agent paid for my plane ticket to Reno where he was doing a show and my agent paid for a hotel room so this was all sanctioned and your agent joe farrell because i'm right. going to talk about her with Good. Stu ryan who has she's the late joe farrell now didn't she pass away i think recently? did she i know theoretically i know she had alzheimer's and honestly i don't even know if that was 
Is that true or a rumor? Well, I think it's true. Uh, we'll get our facts okay. together. Yeah. But let's talk about Joe Farrell when she was alive and well. She was a mover and shaker. She did a total do-over on Roy Romer to get him looking spiffy enough to be elected governor. She right. worked with other politicians. She held court, and she had a modeling talent agency. Back- tell us about it, Joe Farrell Agency, and... Explain how your dad would have felt about all that. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that was back in the, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. The the JF Images was the name of her of her talent agency. And it was considered the top agency in the Denver metro area. Well, really, considering where Denver is, it's pretty much the Midwest. And she had connections on both coasts in New York and Los Angeles. So if you could get in with JF, man, it was a big deal. And I didn't understand how I made the cut, but I did. And then she had said, yes, I understand you want to be an actor, but let's let's let you do some modeling and that way you can, you know, pay your bills while you're waiting for an acting gig. Well, I'm here to tell you I hated modeling. I did not pay my bills. It was all about photography fees and keeping your book up and all of that stuff. The bottom line was she knew acting was specifically musical theater was where I wanted to land. And so when I got this call, and it wasn't Joe Farrell herself, you know, she has she has agents within the agency, and my agent is the one that called me and told me about this setup and that I was going to get acting coaching from this this icon. And so you don't turn that down. Oh my goodness, this is a golden opportunity. He called. And we were we were told to call Cosby, Cosby, Cosby called. We were told to call him Mr. C, so that there was no chance that anybody was going to think, you know, scream favoritism or well, no fair. She got special treatment. So he called our house right here in Centennial. He talked to me. He talked to my parents, and he assured them that you know this is his way of giving back to the industry. Oh, listeners, I wish you could see Craig's face right now. He's sneering. He's got this disgusted look on his face. It's great. Um, Anyway, he called the house, and and my dad is all cavalier. Like, he talks to, you know, icons of entertainment of every day. He's like, well, (laughs) Mr. C, it's great to talk to you. I mean, it was hilarious now looking back on it. But the whole conversation was to assure my parents that he had only— my best interest in mind that he was going to do what he could to make sure I was did, did prepared he, for this industry. Did he bring up the Joe Farrell connection? No, because it was it was understood that that my agent was who recommended me in the first place for for working with him. And I, I wrote a column about Cosby and Castor and the whole situation, and I bring up Heidi, and I bring up Barbara Bowman mm-hmm. and Beth Ferrier. And all three of the Colorado victims who I've met... Right. We're with Joe Farrell. We're, we're with Joe Farrell. Right. So you tell me that she didn't know what was going right. on. Right. Of course she did. And in the first did. interview, when she was not suffering from dementia, she said, yeah, I can't believe it. Cosby was a good friend of mine. I, I don't understand how this could happen. You probably read that. Absolutely. Quote, right. Oh, sure. But she acknowledged that Cosby was her good friend. Right. Now, here's the only thing that I am willing to to consider regarding that. Because, of course, the three of us are like, of course she had to know. Of course she had to know. I know now, retrospect, 2020 hindsight, that perpetrators like this will often leave alone 
some key people so that they do have people like, in his case, Joe Farrell, Felicia Rashad. Mm -hmm. She had, quote unquote, no idea. Now, I will also say, open your eyes. I mean, I don't know about Joe Farrell because it's not like Cosby was living here. But Felicia was on set. There were young ladies coming and going in and out of his dressing room constantly. You can ask the rest of the crew, especially the males on that cast. They knew. So there was a lot of closing our eyes and looking the other way going around. And and that's why I called them enablers. You know, that's a beautiful thing. And it might be your church going. I don't know. Because you have forgiveness and you're trying to look at a way that Joe Farrell might have been Innocent in maybe, all of this. Maybe. And I'm I, I mean, there's obviously I'm a human being and and I'm angry, but I also know now that this is what perpetrators do. They they cover their tracks by making sure they're not gonna just assault right. everybody they know. They're gonna make sure there are some people left behind to account for them. Right. It's not like she's Ghislaine Maxwell. Yeah, there you go. Because she was there participating. Absolutely. But when you were with Cosby, you never saw Joe Farrell. Right, right. And and I'm sure if I'm right, and if she was one of those that, you know, he, she had no way of knowing, I will tell you, I, I'm fairly certain in this, that Beth Barrier did tell Joe Farrell, and, and Joe said, no, I, I don't ever want to hear that again. Right. And it was the classic, you know, what on earth are you saying? We're not believed. Again, his reputation was spotless, and and Joe got very angry, and ultimately it did lead to Beth leaving the, indist- or the uh, agency. So uh, that's a classic example of why people don't report. Classic. There it is. Right. And you're giving Joe Farrell the benefit of the doubt because you kept it secret from her as well. Right. And and going all the way full circle back to your question about my dad. Yes. All right. So mom and dad had talked to Mr. C on this phone call to mm-hmm. our house. Actually, I think he called a couple times. And we all felt like he was everything portrayed on TV, everything that we knew. Uh, it Just comfortable, relaxed. Easy to talk to, you know, guy next door. That's how we all felt. I don't, because I don't remember coming home, I don't remember the flight, I don't remember getting picked up at the airport, I I don't remember. When I start to have memories, I, I knew it was odd that here was this possibly life-altering four days in Reno, and I couldn't remember it. I did remember enough with these horrific snapshots in my brain that I knew I had been assaulted and raped, and I assumed my brain didn't want to remember that, and my psyche was protecting me. So why would I work towards remembering that? And I did not want my parents to be dealing with this. I was protecting them. I didn't want my mom feeling horrified because... She'd been in the the entertainment industry, and oh my gosh, what has it done to my daughter? And I didn't want my dad thinking I bought into that guy. I talked to him on the phone, and I thought he was cool. And I didn't want them going through that, so I didn't say anything. It is so chilling because Cosby talking to your parents, then having you fly out to Nevada for coaching— 
taking you to some location you were not planning on. You thought right. you were going to stay at a resort hotel. Yeah, right? I had t- I had a room paid for by the agency at Harris, which is where he was playing. He takes you out there, and then he puts the rape drug in you. Apparently, yeah. And he apparently has had it work so many times in the past where the woman has no memory, and she goes home, and the parents are, hey, did you have a good trip? I think so. And <laughs> Or they make something up because they don't want to say, gosh, I have like a two-day or three-day blank here. Right. And so it, it, to me, it's, it's indicative of a guy who has done this many times before. And not only that, he must have. I mean, we now know enough about these drugs. Okay, so I, I didn't think about drugs. I thought this was a horrific four days and I'm protecting myself. Great. We're going to move on. And, and I did, thankfully. When these women then started coming public, you know, 30 years later, and they're saying they were drugged, it was my husband that said to me, honey, that's your story. And that, I mean, 30 years before it even occurred to me that that a substance might have been involved. It just, I don't think that way. And so that's when it finally all the dots got connected for me. Another really interesting thing, though, in in, in my story is that, again, these women are going public. My husband was in the car driving my mom somewhere, and a story about one of these women's coming public and, and her story came on the radio. And my mom said, apparently, said, I will never forget that phone call. And apparently my husband pulled the car over and said, what phone call, mom? And she said, well, Heidi called us from Reno. I have no recollection of, I don't even remember seeing a phone, let alone making a phone call. And of course, it's before cell phones, so there's right. there's not that option. But she says, I made a phone call, and she can tell you, at the age of 91, she still remembers it, um, she said she knew something was wrong, that I didn't give any details, I was very vague, and the closest thing I did was say, I think I made him mad. And I was very, very vague about everything else. She said when I came home, she had decided that she was going to let me bring up whatever had happened when I was ready. And because I never brought it up, we never talked about it. And the, and the other hint is, I, back in the day, again, it's before cell phones, before digital, I did scrapbooks. So I had picked up postcards in the airport of Harris Hotel. I was going to put – I kept my – ticket stubs and my boarding pass. And and those ended up being pieces of evidence when, in fact, I thought they were going to be part of a scrapbook. But I came home from four days of what should have been a life-altering experience with my little Kodak Instamatic. And the only pictures I have are of the ranch house as we were driving up. And normally you would be a shutterbug? I would have been a shutterbug. Of course I would. I would have been taking pictures of... And, oh, and I do have pictures of... Um, I mean, obviously, this is an opulent place. And the dining room and the living room. I have pictures of the inside of the house. And that's all before I was drugged. And then all of a sudden, no pictures. Nothing. I understand not telling your dad and mom. But did you tell your boyfriend? Did you tell your future husband? Not until I think I, you know, it's funny. Neither one of us can remember exactly when I told him. I think it was, 
either just before we were engaged or I think it was before we got engaged. I think it was kind of a I, I knew that this was the man I was going to spend my life with, whether or not he had figured it out and proposed yet or not. And you know, had you met him before Cosby? Uh, we had just started dating. Yeah, just started dating. And so, of course, I didn't say anything for quite a while. But but once the relationship was to the point where I knew th- this was my guy, you know, full disclosure, you you don't go into marriage with a secret like that. So I did tell him. And then eventually, when I, we have three daughters that are now, you know, grown, and when each one of them was, I don't know, 11, 12, 13, something, where I felt that they were old enough to process this and, God forbid— if anything had happened to them, they were getting to an age that something could or they would be in a situation maybe friends could have something funky go on. I wanted them to know um, they could talk to me and and quite honestly, nothing would shock me. Nothing would throw us. We would We would put one foot in front of the other and we'd get through it. But I didn't want them trying to protect me the way I tried to protect my parents. So I wanted them to know. And did you tell them it was America's dad, Bill Cosby? Well, they knew him just on the fringes. Uh, They knew from cartoons like Fat Albert. Right. So they knew who he was. And that by that time, by the time the, the women were going public with their stories, obviously they knew him from... I mean, he was he was an icon. They knew movies. They knew his career as a comedian, stand-up. They knew who he was by that time. Right, but when they were growing up, did I they know you knew Bill Cosby? I don't know, and I'm not sure that was that impactful because, you know, in their kidhood, it, that wasn't kind of where he was. Right, but when you had the talk, when yeah. you were 12 or 13, said, you're going to be young women, I'm sure you said be careful right. and be careful what you drink don't let others I, i'm just imagining right. but did you say look this happened to me when i was a young woman mm-hmm. bill cosby took me to nevada i drank something i have no memory i believe i was sexually assaulted i know i was is is that what you say or do that's you... you know you really ought to ask them because honestly i don't remember what i said i do remember thinking I want to be balanced here. I don't want them terrified to socialize. I don't want them afraid to go out in public. I, you know, I want them to have a, a solid understanding that there are good people in the world, and there are some people who no, are sick. I, I get that, but so, I'm just saying, if my mom said, hey, Bill Cosby did this to me, I would have a very low opinion of Bill Cosby. I might write him a letter. I might hmm. seek him out to say, you raped my mom, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I I mean, so I'm wondering if you actually told your daughters it was Bill Cosby. Oh, I did tell them who it was. I'm pretty sure and I did. And how did they react? Did, did they, were they horrified? Did they say, that's scum of the earth? <laughs> I don't know that they did. I think. How do they well, feel now about the guy? Oh, yeah, exactly. Scum of the earth. Um, and in fact... Part of the heartbreak of this, and I, my guess would be if you talk to any one of his victims, I bet this is pretty universal. Our families are so protective of us. You know, they, they get very upset. And when this news broke, and again, now you know what was going on in my, my personal family, my youngest daughter, who is also pursuing an acting career, 
was over to help with furniture moving and uh, hospital beds and helping dad stay calm and mom's, you know, all this. And she came over and I was just finishing up an interview at my parents' house, finishing up one of the interviews with one of the local TV stations. And she came out the back door onto the back patio where we were finishing up the interview and camera shut off and then she just rushed over and burst into tears. And that's the collateral damage. I dealt with it so long ago that I'm I'm okay, but my daughters are not. They are incensed, hmm. furious, and and my family is. And, you know, it's the love me, love my dog kind of a thing. And only with your family members, I, I can handle things a lot easier if you upset me than if you upset my girls. I'm a, I'm a, or my husband. I'm a classic mama bear. I'm okay. But you mess with my girls, you offend my husband, that's dangerous. <laughs> I got it. You are so accomplished as a mother, your oh. musical career. <laughs> Thank you. But it, I wonder how it feels that, you know, the, the way you are most known is for being victimized by Bill Cosby. Yeah. It, Tell That's everybody really what you've accomplished with your career. You went to DU undergrad, and yeah. then you went on for more, and you've influenced the lives of a lot of people. Well, I gosh, if I have, that's humbling. I did go to DU. I got a music education degree. Um, and and when I graduated, I thought, you know, I can be a music teacher for years and years, and I probably will be. I wanted to try this musical theater career thing. And it's kind of, that's the time to do it when you're young and you're right out of college and you don't have a career started yet. And so that's what I did. And that's when all of this happened. And I will tell you that shortly afterwards, so I was 24. So I was like two or three years worth of that industry in into the process. It wasn't long afterwards that I, I just said, you know, I have zero interest in dealing with people like this. And obviously, there are some lovely people. People in, like Cosby? There are some love. yes. There are some lovely people, people in the like inter- Joe Farrell? <laughs> Agents. But again, I would like to focus on the fact that there are some good people. Right. But when when you've been through something like that, uh, and and that was somebody I thought I could trust, it does pull the trust rug right out from underneath you, and you think, gosh... My agency always said she had my back. My personal agent there at Joe Farrell was she was a very grandmotherly type of gal, and she had known my mom. They had been in the entertainment industry. That's another reason I didn't want to tell my mom. She would have been absolutely heartbroken that this person she knew from for years had had led me into the lion's den. So you know. But when you, you might have stuck with it, but for your encounter with Cosby, you might I might, you have. might have been I Florence have. Henderson and the Brady Bunch. I mean, <laughs> who knows? Who right, knows? But could. yeah, I just decided if I, if there are people that I really thought I could trust, right. and they are this this sick, and I do say sick, not evil, because mm-hmm. I I, for what it's worth, I don't know if it's worth anything. I don't I don't give evil my energy. If there is such a thing as evil, I don't want to even feed it my energy. I do believe in illness, and I think he's sick. Cosby is sick. That's my opinion. What about no evil? To me, what he did to you was evil because, among other things— He's sick. No, but it was a betrayal. 
Yep. He, he betrayed you. He betrayed your parents once he made contact with them. He was comfortable with betraying you and totally disrespecting you. Absolutely. But, but again, if you don't, and I don't know the difference between like a sociopath and a psychopath, but I think they're both considered mental illness. No, it's a personality disorder. It's a personality disorder. Okay. But again, that now we're splitting hairs. What is personality disorder? What is evil? You don't know right from wrong. There you go. Right. Which is why he's never admitted any guilt. He doesn't understand that what he did was wrong. He doesn't get it. Here's what I think. Like most rapists, and I prosecuted many rapists, and normally I did not get to talk to them. But Quentin Wortham, who is the Capitol Hill rapist, right. and you're a Denver native, so you know that women were moving out of Capitol Hill because he was raping so many women, young professional women, trying to live on their own. Right. It was terrifying. In, right. Nobody wanted Remember to live that? anywhere close. And then he represented himself. And yeah. in his second trial, Colorado's first DNA trial, he was picking an all-female jury. I could see him excluding men. I said... Hey, Mookie, because I could talk to him. That was his nickname. Why are you getting rid of all the men? He said, men put a value on, and he used the P word. He said, women don't. And his theory, and talking to him further, he said, if I would have been doing that to these women, and he didn't acknowledge he did, but he kind of did, he said, they would have enjoyed it. They liked it. So in his perverted mind— right. Cosby thought, hey, you know what? They really are, they're okay with this. They're getting the great privilege of having sex with me. They might not remember, but I'm doing them a favor. That's the ego. That's the narcissism. That's the sickness. Right. Or personality disorder. Absolutely right. right. And I've even, because obviously all of us have, I mean, we've, we've gone over this in our own brains for decades. There's even a piece of me that wondered, I looked up to him, even though I'm a white female, um, I was raised in a very open, racially open family. I mean, my parents taught me that. And I knew what he was doing for people of color and and the barriers he had broken. And, and, you know, what a role model, supposedly. I knew all of that, and I'm trying to somehow justify or rationalize, which you can't do in, in things like this. That's, that's why I think it's illness. You, there's no justification. There's no rational thought. But I did wonder, he, he became such a celebrity fairly early in his life. Right. You and I... I'm older than you, but I remember I Spy. That right, was groundbreaking. Exactly. Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely. And and that's hey, what Aaron I mean. Cosby, an action star, a black guy with Robert Culp, a white guy. And that On was TV. Groundbreaking. And and in that age, it was amazing. It was it was huge. And, and so I've even gone back and thought, you know, how how lonely, how scary must that have been to be Cosby? In the 60s and 70s, groundbreaking, he had nobody to turn to. He had nobody to ask, you know, about spin or PR or or what should I be doing? I mean, he was – and I wonder if as the career started snowballing really in a positive direction – I mean, he just, you know, it, it got bigger and bigger and bigger 
I wonder if he felt out of control and that these attacks were his way of getting control. Gosh, that's a great conversation. You are so empathetic. Let's <laughs> not leave the subject of race, though, because did race have anything to do with Cosby? I'm. Uh, you know what? This one I have to. Uh, I have to give back to my my Cosby sisters, as we call ourselves, of color. And they are the ones that will tell you the only role race plays in this is that, in fact, if you look at it, he victimized more women of color than he did white women. So that's the only thing you can say about race in this entire thing. And, of course, I'm sure psychiatrists and psychologists would have a field day with that. But it's not about race for you. No. Oh, gosh, I, I. I handle a lot of prosecutions, some against black guys, some against Hispanics, some against white guys. I certainly prosecuted white serial sex offenders as well. They do exist. But there are people who get victimized by a black person and say, I I, I don't like black people now. I've had a bad experience, but you're not one of those people. It must be the way you were raised by It was the way I was raised, um, you know— yeah, absolutely it was. In fact, back in the 60s, when I was just a kid, there was a program here in the Denver area called the Opportunity, it was the Emily Griffith Opportunity School. Right. Right. My dad was an engineer at Honeywell, and they tapped him to teach at the Opportunity School because they knew that it wouldn't matter where these people, what their backgrounds were. I remember meeting... Um, and and I'm sure he's passed now because he was not a young man way back then. I remember meeting a Native American. His name was Bob Ironshield. I remember a, a woman, a black woman, several black men, and these were my dad's students. And we were taught that when you meet one of dad's students, if if we you know meet them for we go out to dinner or dad brings one of them home on their way to an interview because he would sometimes drive them. You know, you call them Mr. Ironshield and you call them Miss, you know, Smith or Jones, whatever, that the respect had nothing. I was I'm not even sure it's the right way now. I was raised to be colorblind. And what I've learned more as an adult, actually, from my adult girls, my daughters, is not to be colorblind, but in fact, to respect their cultures, their traditions. They are different than mine. And, you know, here I am. I'm. I'm Swedish and Irish. I'm about as white as they come, but I so honor and respect the backgrounds of of different people, Asians and Indians, and I do mean East Indians and Native Americans and and all colors. I don't think that being colorblind really is the way to be, and that's how I was raised. Right. And I don't think Cosby had to do with race. I think he was an equal opportunity victimizer. Yeah. Absolutely. He wanted pretty women. He didn't care about skin tone. You know what we did? We did all of us put together as we looked at our pictures. He had a thing about big eyes. Yeah. You do have big eyes. I have big eyes. And if you look at pictures of many of his victims, there was something about big eyes he liked. Right. And then he wanted them to have their eyes shut, right? Because (laughs) they're out of it. What kind of weird guy gets turned on by that for a normal person? 
the thrill of sex is the other person is getting excited, but right. he's not like that, and rapists aren't like that. It's about power and control, and there is a racial aspect to the Cosby case. And that is what's going on right now, because Cosby is using race as an oh, excuse. Oh, that right? infuriated it, me. When Andrew Wyatt, the day he was released, and, and his spokesman there is Andrew Wyatt, and he's saying it's a victory for black a man or black America. I can't remember the words he used. Do you remember? I, I, I know they played the race card, but you know, oh. I think most black people say, come on, dude. Oh, they do. Right. In fact, and, and I do have friends of color, and, and they were incensed that that statement was made. That was out of line. But again, so what else is new with that group? Right. But that's Cosby coming up for some rationalization in his twisted brain and he might have been drugging you, but he's the guy who filled himself up with some artificial whatever. And he's ruined himself. He's that's ruined the... thanks to brave people like you. <laughs> well, that's nice of you. But I, I have said that for years. That's tragic. That is tragic. This man is a comedic genius. He is absolutely brilliant. And, and look at what he could have left as a legacy. Look at what he could have left, and he destroyed it. Right. I watched on HBO or Showtime, they had the one and only Dick Gregory, who was a black comedian. Even a little before our time, he would appear on Jack Parr. I remember him. I yeah. saw him at Colorado College, and uh, oh. I thought, wow, this guy is interesting. But he was no Bill Cosby, right? I mean, Bill Cosby broke barriers up and down the line. Dick Absolutely. Gregory did amazing things with um, uh, Martin Luther King and Medgar Evers. I, I learned a lot. I recommend that show very much. CNN has an hour-long special this weekend, The History of the Sitcom. Well, yeah! How can you talk about sitcoms without talking about Cosby? You can't. You can't. Because, you know, the whole Huxtable family, I mean, that— he did exactly what he set out to do. He allowed America, specifically white America, to see a family like theirs that it just happened to have different skin tones. But it was they dealt with all the same right. dynamics and ramifications and problems with teenagers and 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 marital discourse and you know a messy kitchen and I mean. It was real, and that's why he was so brilliant. He understood the humor in reality. Think of the victory tour he could be on oh, right now in his mid-'80s. He An could. icon, there would be specials about him, the breakthroughs. And, and he was a trailblazer. Absolutely. And here's another thing that I uh, – and I've mentioned this to you, Craig. What's ironic is that when these women went public – as everybody knows, one of the biggest things that was said against them is that everybody, we all want our 15 minutes of fame. That's what this is all about. And I hope everybody who's even considered that or heard it would recognize this is about the last way you'd ever want to be famous. But this guy is absolutely, he's hes had the spotlight for so long. He, first of all, is a narcissist. There's no question about that. And he does not know life without the spotlight. My issue is, and here we are, we've been talking for how long about him, but I'm a retired teacher and I'm a parent. I don't, you know, if you're a parent or a teacher or anybody who deals with children, when you have a misbehaving child, you do not give them attention because they thrive on the attention. 
And here is this guy, and the media can't get enough of him. And he wants to go out. He's talking about his next tour. He's going to revive. And and what blows me away, and yes, hurts me to the core, is that there will be people who will buy tickets and support him after this, after everything. They honestly think he deserves their attention. And I think we ought to just stop the attention and let him live out whatever his days are in his fancy house without any spotlights, without any attention, without any reporters, without anybody. That would be the worst. And I said that three years ago when they were thinking about prison time. I said that would be what the worst for him because he'd have no attention. And now he's out. So guess what? Right. But his audience is diminished. I and hope. your voice is large and loud. <laughs> what do you think about his wife? I'm sure you thought about yeah. Camille Cosby. What's her world? Good question. I again, I I try to think about people. I I do try to empathize. I mean, the woman has lost a child, two right. children, two children. I think she's had tragedies. She's had tragedies in her life. Um. I don't know how you you stand by your man, as it were. <laughs> um, again, it's an enabler. She is. She has chosen to look the other way because she is an intelligent, very bright woman, and she has chosen right. to look the other way. So, unfortunately, in spite of the fact that I would love to give her. My compassion as a mom who has outlived children, I can't because she's enabled this to continue. I mean, several of his assaults happened in their home, and she was there. She was home. Andrea Constant got assaulted in her Mont- in his Montgomery County property that he shared right. with Camille. Let's talk about the TV wife, Felicia Rashad. <laughs> yeah. She had a Twitter uh, tweet that backfired on her yeah. <laughs> in light of the appeal. How do you feel about her? Well, again, I I, I don't know her personally Tell everybody about the tweet. I, yeah. I will. She, she, she said it was a great day and yeah. that uh, she was cheering on Cosby, and she kind of took it back afterwards. But well, through the years, how do you feel about her? When Before all of this happened, back when the Cosby show was on, and she was simply Mrs. Huxtable. The lawyer. The lawyer. And I had seen her, you know, I mean, as an actress, I had seen her in other things, too. And again, she's she just comes across you know, so level-headed. And when you see her interviewed as a human being, not as a character, she is she's calm, she's articulate, she's bright. And and I try to reconcile that woman with somebody who works with this sick dude day after day, week after week, year after year. And all I can come up with is that I do believe, I know now, that it is very common for serial criminals, we'll put it criminals, whether they're rapists or or thieves or people who commit fraud, serial criminals will always have people that they never show that side to so that they will have people as character witnesses. So I am absolutely sure he never did anything in front of Felicia Rashad 
to indicate his uh, his alter ego, his other side. I'm sure he didn't. My my disbelief is is in how she again turned a blind eye. You can't be on set that many years. I mean, the guys in their cast, the men noticed how many young ladies were going in and out of his dressing room and how many of them looked a little funny when they left and how often they were put into a cab by an assistant and how often they looked disheveled. Mm-hmm. Other people, those are the enablers, people on the ca- in the cast, on the crew, directors, producers, writers, camera people, that's just that TV show. That doesn't even count the agents, the people over decades of time that saw this stuff. And and I'm, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here. I will tell you that we as victims know that there have been deathbed confessions of people who worked with him. They went on record to clear their spirit or their soul before they died about one in particular that I know of was one of his drivers who said, I knew I, wow. I watched these women get, you know, plunked into the back of the car, half dressed and clearly incapacitated all the time. Right. And, and I never Cosby, said anything. I mean, I mean, let's face facts. Cosby could have had all sorts of consensual sex, but those women might have talked about it afterwards. He wanted women with no clear memory. Right. And and as you look at things, and by the way, we can talk about this later, but there's an outstanding new documentary film done here in Denver called Erased. And it's all about drug-facilitated sexual assault and how it erases you know, the memory. It's the perfect crime because you can't give details you, you can't. You don't remember the details. You know you were with this person at the beginning of the evening, and you were fine. And at the end of the evening, you were in this condition. Right. But, but can't, when they come right down to it and say, do you remember, you know, that, that the person you were with penetrating you or whatever, you can't say that. Right. It's the perfect crime. So he figured it out. But all these people, decades Hundreds, probably thousands of people never said a word. And I'm sure it's because they were on his payroll. He was. I don't speak Latin, but the words modus operandi. Oh, yeah. Method of operation. It's rule 404. It's why you got to testify. It's why when we prosecuted Quentin Wortham, we had six separate victims, just like Cosby. In the Philadelphia case, well, Montgomery County, you went and testified. There were. What are there, 63 women making accusations? Publicly, publicly. And the court in the second trial said, I'm going to let you put on your five best prosecutors. And they picked Heidi Thomas. You are proving why, because you are such a smart person and you say what you remember. You don't say what you don't remember. What was it like being a star witness back in that trial that the whole world was watching? Um. I don't know that I'd call it a star witness. I mean, I guess I was. I was so honored, Craig, so honored. And I have said this, and I will say it till the day I die, to to be chosen, to allow my, my voice to speak for over 60 other women, that was such an honor and, and honestly such a responsibility that 
when D.A. Steele asked if I would do that, I, I told him the same thing. I said, wow, if if you think I'm up to the task, I'm I'm on. I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm ready. Um, and in in Montgomery County, their their law is called prior bad acts. So it's my understanding that Kevin Steele and his dream team picked the five stories that most closely aligned with Andrea Constan's story. So that it really was comparing apples to apples. And and you know, as opposed to I, I know one one of his victims. Um, was working in a coffee shop, and he came in for coffee. He drugged, he asked to talk to her. He asked the manager if she could sit down and talk to him about getting into show business. And what's the manager going to say to Bill Cosby? No, she's working? Of course not. So she sits down at a table in the coffee shop in which she's working, and he, in broad daylight, in front of everybody, and I'm sure he did it surreptitiously, he drugged her coffee in a coffee shop. And then basically had his henchmen tell the manager, you know what, um, we're going to take her and we're going to talk to her more about her career. Um, you know, and here's her, her name badge and we're taking her. And they probably half carried her out to the car because, of course, she doesn't know how she got from the coffee shop to where she ended up. She doesn't remember any of that. So it's, it's a sick story, but it doesn't really align with Andrea. So the the DA picks the five of us that have the stories most closely aligned and then I'm given the chance to be, for whatever reason, the very first witness in the second case. After the first case was a hung trial or a hung jury. You were the first witness? I was the first victim witness. I see. Yeah. They had uh, D.A. Steele determined after that first trial that he wanted to put the expert on victim behavior on the stand very first. Right. So that the jury would hear... Everything the next five of us had to say, oh, that's exactly what victims do. That's exactly how they behave. That's exactly how they think. So he set the stage by educating the jury first. And you know why he put you up, laid up? I do. I No. He wanted to win. Oh, that's <laughs> He wanted sweet. to win, and he said, I'm going to put up a strong witness as the first victim. And wow. that's Heidi Thomas. You know, Thank you. I knew you were a strong witness. You and I talked for many years. Yeah. Um, In the halls of the capital of Colorado. Right. And we also did broadcasts yeah. together. And uh, I I think I met Barbara Bowman first, very impressed by her. Oh, she's and then, a delight. Then I spoke with you, and I met you, and I came to see why Kevin Steele would regard you as such an important witness. And we communicated after the reversal. I got in touch with Barbara as well. And you peppered me with questions. <laughs> Craig, you're a lawyer, so why don't you do it on the air? Because I have read the opinion, and I think I got to tell you something you did not know. For Colorado listeners, and that's most of my listeners, you remember Jean Benet Ramsey. That was a media circus. And Cyril Weck, Dr. Cyril Weck, who's a lawyer and a doctor, many times in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, he wrote a book called Who Killed Jean Benet? And he was suspicious of the Ramseys. And I would have him on the radio and whatnot. And the guy was on the Warren Commission investigating the death of JFK. He is a prominent, interesting guy. His son, Mark Weck, went to law school, became a judge. 
He is the justice on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court who wrote the opinion reversing the decision uh, where Cosby was convicted of raping Andrea Constand. And that trial that you testified at, Heidi Thomas, uh, did you know that before I told you? No, no I had no idea that, uh, you know, we were talking about the six degrees of separation, and I feel like it's down to about two or three. <laughs> the world is such a small world. Are you mad at Judge Wecht and the judges who overturned this uh, Cosby conviction? Tell me all your questions. I'll try to answer them. <laughs> you know, um, time does heal wounds. Last Wednesday, when this news broke, I was livid. And anybody who saw any of those interviews, <laughs> there was no question. I was, I was angry. I am now, I am just so confused. Uh, and yeah, I, I have to confess to some anger still, because I don't understand. And often when I don't understand, I get angry. That's that's a me thing. I I guess my question, and, and I think I said even that day, I said, I want to be put in a room with the people who made that decision. I want to talk to those justices because I don't get this. So now that I find out you, Craig, have this, you know, kind of couple of degrees of separation connection, and I knew, obviously, you're an attorney, um, I thought, okay, th maybe I can get some answers that make sense to me. I was sent the over 70-page right. ruling. I'm not an attorney. I don't read legalese. I don't understand it. So there's part number one is that these these wordy, verbose things come down, and, and normal people like me don't understand what it's saying, even though I'm a, I'm a college graduate. I'm pretty bright. So there's that problem. But then I don't get... I understand that there was a, a little bit of a question as to whether there should have been the five victims yes. allowed, and I don't understand why that was ever in question, because there is the law of rule prior— Rule 404B. Prior bad acts. And they have the same rule in the federal system in Pennsylvania and Colorado, and in the appeal, they go through all the similar bad act evidence, which included a description of Heidi Thomas's testimony— you are listed right there, and you will be forever part of history because you're named in the appellate opinion, but they never even address that question because they say there's another problem. Right. I think I think they've finally decided that wasn't worth going into. Right. They said it's rendered moot because we're going to throw out this conviction to vindicate a principle. So that's what I want to explain to you. Yeah, because I, okay. this I don't get. There are certain legal principles that underpin our rule of law, and it's based on the Constitution of the United States. So if I go to your home out in South Denver metro area, and uh, I'm a law enforcement guy, and I go in without a warrant, and I seize something that belongs to you or a family member, and then you are charged with a crime, let's say it's a bloody knife, God forbid, somebody used well, then that bloody knife is going to be the fruit of the poisonous tree. And even though it might have established your involvement in a violent crime, we need to protect the sanctity of people's homes. Right. And it says that you have to have a warrant or some other exception to this constitutional principle. Yes. So the constitutional principle involved here is due process, fair dealing. What's fair in the context of pursuing a criminal? Well, one thing that we hold sacrosanct is your word is your bond. And if a DA tells you 
this is the deal, and then you rely on that deal, that deal needs to be honored. And it wasn't Kevin Steele who made the deal. It was a DA two before him, Bruce Castor Jr., who in 2004, Andrea Constant gets raped on the Montgomery County property of Bill and Camille Cosby. She waits about a year before she reports it. For all the reasons you described, she starts telling her parents. They get him to make some incriminating statements and some phone calls. He suddenly offers to set up a trust for her, whatnot. And she is pissed, and she goes to the Montgomery County DA, who is Bruce Castor Jr., who said, well, I don't know. And then Cosby's lawyers started lobbying him. And eventually he said, you know, Andrea Constant's delayed reporting and certain inconsistencies in what she says makes her not that great of a witness. And uh, at the same time, uh, I'm not going to file charges, but I want her to get a chance to develop this in a civil court, maybe. And he puts out a press release promising Cosby he won't prosecute him and saying, I want you to cooperate in uh, this civil case. His lawyers had to see this as a get-out-of-jail-free card. This sure. is informal immunity. And he goes ahead and gives a deposition. But what they didn't count on is how bad he would be. And he starts <laughs> saying, well, I gave Andrea Constant Benadryl, but I have given other women quaaludes. <laughs> right. And he starts... And so they get those admissions in this secret deposition back in 2005, 2006, after Castro has turned it down. And then Andrea Constant settles her case for like $3.8 million. And that's in a supposed, civil court. Right. That's supposed to be the end of it. Secret agreement, secret this and that. But women keep coming forward. And eventually Barbara Bowman writes an editorial for the Washington Post he raped me 30 years ago. Why does it now that people believe me? And then the floodgates were open, and the Washington Post put all the women together. Other publications did it. And it became overwhelming that Bill Cosby was a serial sex offender. And by now, Kevin Steele has defeated Bruce Castro, who tried to run again to get his job back. Right. Kevin Steele said, no, you screwed up the Cosby case right before that election. Andrea Constant drops his civil lawsuit on Bruce Castor Jr. Bruce <laughs> Castor Jr. loses the election. He says, I'll show her. And he sues Andrea Constant back. <laughs> and so you got a, a bunch rape of victim children. suing a DA and a DA is suing a rape victim. Eventually, Castor's lawsuit gets thrown out. Andrea Constant settled her case against Castor. I wonder what she got from that guy who goes on to be Donald Trump's impeachment lawyer. And if he'd have kept talking, maybe Donald Trump would have been impeached. But they Just, said, sit down and shut up, Bruce. Uh, absolutely. You know, you know, that so they, that's what happened. And the, the appellate court said, you know, as big a doofus as Bruce Castor is, he made a promise <laughs> that binds the Montgomery County DA's office, and we're going to throw this out because we're going to vindicate this principle that when a DA makes a promise to a defendant, it needs to be enforced, especially when the defendant relied on it, and he did testify, which opened the floodgates against him. So does so that make sense to you? Yes and no. I mean, your explanation is excellent. But here's what doesn't make sense to me. First of all, Castor's an attorney. And the way I understood it, 
rule one uh, for anybody, let alone an attorney, is get it in writing. And one would have thought that if there was an agreement, it would have been in writing and somewhere. And that's what the trial court found, and Stu Ryan will talk about. There's right. a process for granting immunity. It requires a court to sign off formal documents. And he's and- saying because he's a judge, therefore, his press conference and his saying there's a promise, therefore, that is an agreement that's binding. Correct. Because he's a judge. Because the rest of us, apparently, can't just go have a press conference and say, this no, is no, so. No, because he was the DA. Not because he was the judge, because Bruce Castor was the DA. Because he was the DAs DA. have so much power. Wow. That, yes. So he didn't have to have it in writing because he was a DA. Right. Plus, he put out a press release that he signed. Right. More or less promising that. And why he did it was he paid off by the Cosby There people. you go. I don't put anything past Bruce Castor Jr. I Absolutely. That's my other thing. And, and I'll even take it back a step before that. And which is why I say your explanation is excellent. I don't like it. I mean, to me, that says, oh, the DAs are also above the law because they don't really have to do everything that the normal people have to do. You don't really have to have a signed agreement. All you got to do is say something on a press release and put your signature. That, that'll that work because you're a DA. Okay, great. I don't – that upsets me because I think we're all equal. But Right, and several right. judges said, okay, there's a problem here, but this case can be retried. Let's just eliminate um, the deposition testimony, the admission of the quaaludes. He'd probably still be convicted, but that's it. the majority said, no, the violation was so egregious that we are going to remove the possibility of a retrial. Okay, now you'd want to talk about violations being egregious. They think that somebody putting a man on trial— because a DA said something and it wasn't followed, that's more egregious than over 60 women being sexually assaulted and raped and a jury finding him guilty. I, that really? You're going to tell me that weighs out? Okay. And, and here, I want to I go back a step. I want to go back before that. The reason that Bruce Castor Jr. said he wasn't going to convict He said he just didn't feel there was enough evidence to convict Cosby in a criminal trial and that he wanted to give, he wanted Cosby to pay something somehow. Right. And therefore, he was trying to get enough in a deposition, then Andrea would have a civil suit she could go for. There was plenty of evidence. There were boxes of evidence. Why? Even back in 2005. In 2005. And... I know that from talking because detectives from Montgomery County came and interviewed every single one of us, all 62 plus. Back in 2005? No, in in 2015, after Kevin Steele was elected and he said, I'm going to get this guy into court, those detectives were sent out across the country and they came to our homes and they interviewed every one of us. But in fairness, what year did you come for? 2015. Okay, it wasn't until So Bruce right. Castor didn't know about you. No. Well, what I'm telling you is that the detectives told me, sitting at my kitchen table, they had boxes of evidence in 2005. Now, from where? I don't know. Is this from all the other women who have been accusing him over the years and it never made the headlines because he paid them off? I don't know. I don't know what kind of evidence 
There was. But a, a detective told me we had boxes of evidence, and I'm probably going to get in trouble no, no, for this, no, but I'm, I'm just no, going to tell no, you. that's right, and it's consistent. Okay. Because Andrea Constant has great civil attorneys. And right. And one of the things that Castor did, which is unforgivable, is before he struck this deal with Cosby, he didn't talk to Andrea Constant. No. He didn't talk to her lawyers. He and made a he unilateral if, decision. If he would have been a halfway intelligent attorney, he would have realized in civil law, in criminal case, if a defendant exercises his right to remain silent, it cannot be used against him. But in a civil proceeding, it leads to an adverse inference. And he's the one that suggested to give a death position, am I right? Uh, well, or he, he agreed to it. Did, right. But if, if, if Cosby comes into Andrea Constant's deposition and the question is, did you drug Ms. Constant? I take the Fifth Amendment. Did you rape Ms. Constant? I take the Fifth Amendment. The jury could be instructed... From that answer, there's an adverse inference that he did do these things. Otherwise, he'd be answering. So you don't really need Bruce Castor to give him immunity, right? Absolutely not. And and here's my uh, a comment I have made, and you just alluded to it. You said something like, uh, an intelligent attorney would have, right. you know, dot, 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 fill in the blanks. Um, if I'm wondering, again, I'm going back to a step before all of this. Was was Castor in a, unable? Was he not capable of taking I, all of I've, that? I've watched him on that Donald Trump proceeding, and I know it was last <laughs> minute. But there are good lawyers and bad lawyers, and he's a bad lawyer, and he's a bullshitter. Oh. He just makes stuff up, and he's full of himself. He's arrogant. He's pompous. And he might have created this deal just through. I hope he doesn't sue you. <laughs> through his sheer ineptitude. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Is he inept? Is was he afraid? He might be on the take, or he might. Or be was inept. he paid? I don't know. I, I right because that's where. I mean, let's go way back to the root of this thing. Why was there ever an agreement needed in the first place? Because he wouldn't prosecute. Okay, why wouldn't he prosecute? Because he says there wasn't enough evidence. I can promise you, according to the detectives of Montgomery County, there was evidence. And not only that, ooh, juicy scoop. Are you ready? One of the detectives, who shall remain nameless, took those boxes home to his basement because mm -hmm. he was afraid they would go missing. And right. they were there for almost... 10 years, from That's 2005 amazing. to 2015. So there was plenty of evidence. Why, why did Castor decide he wasn't going to pursue it? It's fascinating. And the only other parallel case, we brought up Sean Benet Ramsey in the yeah. context of Cyril Weck. There you go. Mary Lacey, Mary Keenan before that, but when she took the other name, she became DA, succeeding Alex Hunter. She for whatever reason, exonerated the Ramses, and DAs just don't do that. If you're not going to file a case against somebody, just keep your mouth shut because you never know what evidence is going to come along later. So Bruce Castor, he could have said, you know what? We don't have proof beyond reasonable doubt yet, and then just wait to see what will happen down the road. Instead, he gave Cosby this gift of immunity but it backfired 
on Cosby because even though it was a get-out-of-jail-free card, it didn't work until he already spent about three years in prison. So, but here's, it, here's even, my... even though the case was reversed and all of that, I mean, he spent three years in prison. Everybody believes he's a serial rapist except really stupid people. So how much does the reversal really cost you and the rest of society? There's, there's the point. And that, that's the part that really does um, concern me. Because, yeah, I mean, look, anybody who finds themselves alone in a room with Bill Cosby at this point, shame on you. You're not paying attention. I don't think he's going to victimize anybody else. I really don't. He's an old man. If if he goes out on the road again and again, anybody finds themselves in a room alone with him. I it's a stupid decision. It's a stupid decision to go see his show in the first place. But the precedent this sets, and that's now where many of the Cosby women are. I mean, we're beyond the shock. We've we've dealt with decades of of shock at and shaking our heads in confusion at various legal things, and what the rich and powerful get away with. Right. But now, this sure looks like district attorneys, and I'll use it plurally because I don't know. But are they God? They just get to kind of make the rules, I guess. And that's wrong. They have godlike powers. That's wrong. That is not the way the justice it, it, system should scary. work. And you encountered Kevin Steele and Stu Ryan, and you think and they, the world of them. Absolutely. People, quality people, and I've said they were professional and compassionate and diligent and dedicated. I mean, you could not ask for higher quality individuals. And- and maybe, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Maybe good people get into high positions and eventually go sour. Um, and I don't know. In I think case- you encountered two low-quality individuals, Bill Cosby and-, and Bruce Castor Jr., who I imagine you've never met. Never met. Right. No. But now that I'm telling you it was his decision-making, you know this, you're smart. If Bruce Castor Jr. were... If he were to be listening to this podcast, what would you say to him? Oh, boy. I'd have to think and I'd have to choose my words very carefully. It's a podcast. I already (laughs) said bullshit. I know, but that's you and it's your show. I, I think I'd say you have let so many people down. You have absolutely destroyed our faith in our American justice system. You have... Pulled the rug of trust out from underneath us. We thought we could trust our because district attorneys are elected officials. We cannot, right? Right. Is that true in yes. Pennsylvania? Okay. We can't trust the people that we thought we could trust. And oh, guess what? There's a theme here. That's exactly how I felt about my agent. That's how I felt about Bill Cosby. I thought I could trust district attorneys to be people of high integrity, high intelligence, lots of energy. They would go after the bad guys for me. That's why I elected them. And you have let not just me down. You've let down the people in your state. And now, because this is a national case, frankly, it's international. I got interviewed last Saturday by the biggest television station in Germany. It goes all over Europe. And you've let down all these people. And I would I would go on to say there are a lot of angry Americans right now. This has happened on the tail of 18 months of a pandemic that has already 
knocked us out from, you know, hit us at the knees. And and we're we're coming out of this horrible year. We've had a year of racial incredible racial unrest and violence. We've had political division. We've had I mean, it has been a horrific couple of years and Americans are fed up. And then this hits and a lot of people are saying Okay, what do we do to fix this? What do we do? Because this is beyond. Oh, and I haven't even mentioned gun violence. There's another one. Right. What I think a lot of Americans are trying to figure out. I thought I elected my officials to be my voice. I have made my opinion clear, and they are not doing what I'm asking them to do. I'm asking them to address racial and political division. I am asking them to get some decent legislation on, you know, automatic weapons that should never be in a civilian's hands for any reason at all. You are preaching to the choir. I know. I'm preaching, period. Let me just say Bruce Castro Jr. remains arrogant. I saw him interviewed on Philadelphia Of course he does. He says... I did everything perfectly. He's like his <laughs> client who made a perfect call, right? But he said, I put the dominoes in motion. I got Cosby to testify. It allowed victims to get massive civil judgments. But I want to say, hold on there. I didn't get a big civil judgment. Barbara, nope. Beth, they didn't get anything. They went to Colorado to change the statute of limitations from 10 to 20 years. Still not far enough back to get to the 80s when you guys were victimized, but um, he's still arrogant, and he's bragging on what a great job he did. And he doesn't really think about you and the other 60-plus victims, there are probably hundreds or thousands, who needed that criminal conviction and Cosby in jail. That was your only sense of justice, because you haven't been paid for any of this. But you made it happen, and you made truth happen, and I'm thrilled that I got Thank to you. know you. What else do you want to get off your chest? Stu Ryan's coming up. <laughs> how long do you have? <laughs> uh, however um, long you need. Um, I, I think you hit on another thing that I think is really important. As we move forward, and we will be moving forward with all sorts of creative ideas for how to fix a broken justice system, but... Obviously, Bruce Castor and many others, many others, think that a civil settlement equals justice. They think that money will fix it, and it doesn't. I am here to tell you, especially in, in terms of sexual assault crimes and rape, it doesn't matter, which is, which is why I have never gotten an attorney. It doesn't matter if I get paid. The, the rape is something that's done to your heart and your soul in addition to your body, and money doesn't fix it. But you are living proof you can overcome these things. What about Andrea Constant? Did you meet her? You know, I've never met her in person, but we have um, obviously developed a, a beautiful, I would call it a friendship via, you know, the phone and texts and, and other ways of doing things. And in fact, one of the things that she and I do connect on is how to move forward after trauma, after you've been victimized. And in our case, it happens to be sexual crimes, but it can be any kind of trauma. Um, God love, I mean, our people coming back with PTSD from various wars and military actions, it can be childhood um, abuse, and it doesn't have to be sexual abuse. It can be that you were beaten. It, it can be um, bullying 
People and do you not have, realize. You have your special healing solutions. I, well, I do. Let's I, plug it. I'd love that. I'd love that. And by the way, while we're plugging, Andrea Constant, this is one of the things that we connect on, is that she has developed, it's called a safe app, and it is hope, healing, and transformation. You can look that up, .com. You can download an app to your phone, your iPad, whatever you want to do. It is specifically for victims of sexual crimes. It is loaded with resources, who to contact, um, things you can do to help yourself sleep. She and I are connecting. Her her safe app is mentioned or will be. Haven't quite gotten that stepped on yet. Will be mentioned on my website and vice versa. As far as moving forward and finding ways to help yourself heal. Give your website. My website is www.healththroughmusic.com. So it's health, like health and wellness, through T-H-R-O-U-G-H music.com. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, this is the fun part, because this is where it all comes full circle. The reason I am now doing the work I'm doing is all tied back to this ridiculous tragedy. Isn't that ironic? But I'm hoping it is, um, I, I do hope it's it's a hopeful thing for people who are victimized and think my life will never be the same. No, it won't. But it doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to be, you know, I, I can't move forward. It doesn't have to color the rest of your life. And that's what I hope that some of us can help you understand. And how can your music help? We're going to play at the end of the show three selections that you provided. Thank you. Tell us about them and what they do for people. All right. I'm going to first of all help you understand why I do what I do. When all of these women, I I started meeting them all. You know, we'd go to photo shoots. We'd go to um, the the Dateline special. and, And eventually I met almost all of the 60 plus that have gone forward. And I recognized that uh, there are many who, whose lives were destroyed, absolutely destroyed by that crime that, that Cosby committed. There are people who turn to substance abuse to deal with it. Um, some of them have spent time in jail because then to feed your substance abuse, you know, you turn to other crimes of, I don't know, theft or whatever. Um there are some who turn to prostitution because their self-esteem went, you know, tanked and they thought that's all they're good for. Relationships are destroyed. Marriages don't last. Their kids are estranged because they're tired of hearing mom talk about it. Um, they can't hold a job. They can't, I mean, destroyed. And yet there are also a few of us who went on to lead blessed lives. Fine. Oh, I I tried to look for everything. I looked for common denominators. Why were some people just stuck in that victimhood and other people were able to move on? What what's the magic? And I looked at, you know, the age we were when we were assaulted or our our family of origin. Did we have broken families? Were you know, did we have, you know, trouble with our siblings? Were we good students? Were we bad students? Were we from a certain place in the country, were we socioeconomically, where were we? What I tried, I looked at everything, including, and I think it's important to mention, matters of faith. And even that didn't determine who moved forward and who was stuck, even that. But what I did discover was that 
Oh, well, let's see. I'm a musician, and there's a piano teacher who's from New York, and there's a singer from Los Angeles, and there's a teacher from Nevada. And people who had had music as kind of an ongoing part of their lives were somehow coming through this mess. And so then I just started doing my own research and and reading on music and the brain. I learned that music is, in fact, cutting-edge neuroscience. Didn't know that. I was just a music teacher. And and I, I it opened up a whole new world of the science of acoustics and what the brain and the body do. Uh, and I have, I continue to learn. I'm just stunned. I had no idea that my life, because I started taking piano lessons from my mom and my grandma at the age of three, and I've always had music in my life. I didn't know you had any options. <laughs> I, I had no idea that it was probably helping me through this wow. trauma. Didn't even know until all these years later, and now I have been able to retire from being a K-12 through music teacher and a private music, you know, piano and, and voice teacher. And now my work is on helping people learn how to use music as a tool in your health and wellness. No, you do not have to be a musician. We are living in a fabulous era. There's Spotify, there's Pandora, there's music streaming. There are people who are able to get their compositions out. Um, one of Craig's neighbors is one of them. Get, yes, get Dave your, Gunders, our troubadour. There we go, your troubadour, Dave Gunders. People who are composers, that's not my gift, by the way. I, I hold <laughs> composers in high esteem. And these people who are getting their music out streaming on YouTube and, I mean, you name the platform, music is everywhere right now. You don't have to wait for a harpsichord to be wheeled into your, you know, chamber. Um, you can use it, and I can help you learn the, the things about music that will help you deal with trauma. That's you know what I do. who helped you were the... Dream Team, oh, the amen. prosecutors. Amen. Do you mind if I get Stu Ryan on the phone with you? Oh, would you? I'd love that. He wants to talk to you, I do believe. Oh, my gosh. Music therapy. Learn more by going to Heidi's website. I'll also tell you. Oops. Stu Ryan, Craig Silverman here, and I've got a special friend of yours, Heidi Thomas. Hello, Stu. Uh, oh, it is so great to you. I feel like it's old home week here. And I don't know when you're going to have a chance to listen to this uh, podcast because I know you're up next. But I want you to know, in case you haven't heard it from Kirsten or anybody else back there, my husband and our family um, have referred to all of you, the detectives, the, the victims' advocacy Kevin Steele, Kirsten, you, all of you, we refer to you guys as the dream team. Well, apparently we have a, a mutual admiration society going because I can promise you that the, the other four feel as I do. It was an amazing honor to be able to be the voices for so many. And, you know, we have District Attorney Steele, uh, frankly, the judge who ultimately was our judge, <laughs> to thank for that. They allowed us to speak. They allowed our voice to be heard. 
Hey, Stu, this is really cool to have you on with Heidi. And Heidi, normally I don't have non-lawyers in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, but you are welcome to stay. I, you know what? I I need to get for right. my family and situation. So, Stu, I just wanted you to know how much Heidi uh, holds you in great esteem. I wanted you to know that. And Craig was nice enough to connect us up so I could say it to you in person. So if I could, I'm going to let Heidi out of the studio, and I'm going to get right back to you. Okay, Stu? Wonderful. It's great to hear your voice. It's kind of a nice little, you know, it's like one of those things when you hear that that calm voice, and it takes you back to a warm, fuzzy place. That's, That's what your voice does. So thank you, and thanks for whatever you're about to say. I can't wait to hear what you're— Can I just say before then, because I was a prosecutor for a long time, and your attitude is so terrific, because as a prosecutor, you sometimes worry that the client or the victim associates you with this terrible thing that happened. You have to hear the whole interview, and I I hope you will, Drew, because— or Stu, the, the bottom line, Stu, is that Heidi has come out strong. You know that because you've met her. And everybody reacts to trauma in a different way. And she just regards you as a hero, you and Kevin Steele. And we'll get right back to you, okay? Right. I wanted you to hear that because sometimes, you know, people don't hear that enough, but... You are a positive impact in Heidi's life. Go ahead, Heidi. And, and I, I'll even I'll add one more thing onto this. For any attorneys out there, judges, especially prosecuting attorneys, this is critical because what we were able to do is so empowering for a victim to be able to face that person in court and basically take their take their life back and say. You know, you had control for a few minutes there, but now I have control. I'm the one in charge. It is so empowering and so healing, and and I want that. Maybe that's my final message is that if you are a victim, you can only get that kind of closure if you first report and let the law enforcement people do their jobs, give you a shot at it. Then you're going to get the Stu Ryans of the world and the Kevin Steeles and the Kirsten Fetters, and they will take you under their wings, and you have that opportunity. And Stu, that's my final word. Thank you for giving us that opportunity, you and your dream team. Absolutely. All right, have a fabulous interview. We're going to be right back with M. Stuart Ryan Esquire. How lucky are we to have one of the prosecutors of Bill Cosby right back? Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. Uh, We both pride ourselves on being good attorneys, and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer, 
Do you want to go through a few of these right now and we'll keep going on future talks? What about number one, behave yourself? What does that mean to you? I mean, there's a whole slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board. They need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my... My website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way, too. If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound, and then leave a positive review. More than anything, push the podcast to your friends. Let them listen. Thank you. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I feel honored to have on my show one of the prosecutors of Bill Cosby. I think they did an amazing job. Even though there was an appellate reversal, you've heard from Heidi Thomas that she has nothing but admiration for our next guest. M. Stuart Ryan was in the Montgomery County DA's office, one of the more interesting prosecutorial experiences that a person could have. Stu Ryan, thanks a lot for being in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Craig, thanks so much for having me. And again, thank you so much for... um you know, reconnecting me with Heidi. It's always great to have the chance, not just speak with her, but, you know, anyone I had the chance to work with in the in the DA's office, and we don't get those chances often enough, so thank you so much. Well, she's a Colorado kid, so am I. You grew up in a different part of the world. Tell everybody about where you grew up and how it led you to the Montgomery County DA's office. So I grew up in uh, Whitpain Township, which is only about uh, 10 minutes away from the courthouse where I ended up working as an assistant district attorney in Montgomery County that was located in Marstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, These are all suburbs of Philadelphia, not too far at all from Philadelphia. And so I gained an interest um, in being a trial lawyer through um, a mock trial program I did in high school and uh, eventually was invited to be an intern at the Montgomery County DA's office. And incidentally, uh, the work I did there uh, once I became an assistant DA was to prosecute uh, cases involving physical child abuse and then sexual assault and abuse of adults and children. And when I first uh, went to the DA's office as an intern during my interview, I actually said I'd rather do anything but sex crimes. And lo and behold, I ended up getting assigned to the sex crimes unit as an intern. Um, and really never looked back. And I, I often reflect on that experience. And thinking back to my younger days, I, I feel like it was a circumstance that a lot of other people confront when it comes to dealing with issues of sexual violence, where you don't 
want to see it. You don't want to hear it. You don't want to deal with it. Um, but once you're put in that space and you see the amazing impact that uh, law enforcement done the right way, prosecution done the right way, what I do now, civil litigation done the right way, when you see the impact that it can have on the the life of a survivor in the community, you really have no choice but to hear it, uh, to see it, and to deal with it, and to work to do everything you can to help someone who's been put in a position um, where they've been hurt or victimized. Uh, so, you know, I didn't know it going into it, but the uh, whoever it was that ultimately assigned me to the sex crimes unit as an intern really kind of changed the trajectory of my, my career as a lawyer and my professional life and my personal life as well. I have had a similar experience as a prosecutor. To me, it's a wonderful thing to go to somebody who's been victimized. Your heart goes out to them, but you can help them as a prosecutor by getting at the truth, holding a person accountable if the evidence is sufficient. And you tell them, I'm here to help. Their trust has been betrayed. And Heidi put it beautifully. The rapist gets off on their power and control Under the right circumstances, you can give the power and control back to the victim, and that really is uh, gratifying work. Absolutely, and she really did say it it well in the way you just described it, and what she said at the very end of uh, our little time together was that for a lot of people, and she's certainly a, a beaming example of this, that having the opportunity to confront your accuser and, like you said, kind of take your agency back from that person who's abused you or hurt you um, can be so, so important. And being uh, part of that process has always been so satisfying for me, again, both professionally and personally. Part of the prosecutorial process involves politics that can be considered unfortunate or fortunate. It depends on your perspective. Sometimes it's partisan politics in Colorado. We tend to have races between Republicans and Democrats for a position that is supposed to be apolitical. Montgomery County has quite a history when it comes to the politics of the DA's office. Tell us about it and how it became relevant to the Cosby prosecution. You know, Craig, I'm actually happy to say that uh, during my time in the DA's office, I was never really exposed to politics. I can't speak for anyone's experience before I joined. Um, I was hired by then District Attorney Reese of Esri Furman, who uh, has since taken the bench in Montgomery County. And then I worked under Kevin Steele, who's still the elected DA. Um, And frankly and and honestly and candidly, neither one of them I ever considered to be a quote-unquote politician. They were prosecutors first. And I know from reading things on the outside about uh, the Cosby case, there have been certain instances where people wanted to inject politics into that case and into our office. But for their parts, both uh, then DA Furman and now District Attorney Kevin Steele did an amazing job of keeping politics out of the office because those sorts of offices should never be political. It should be about doing the right thing for the right reasons, which is exactly what then DA Furman said to me when she hired me that she wanted me to do. And she said that to every single assistant district attorney that she hired. And that's, in fact, what we did. And even uh, with respect to the Cosby case, and like I said, there are certain folks that want to try and inject politics into it. 
But it was never about that. It was about following the facts and the evidence when we reopened the investigation into that case. Um, and I think everyone had the opportunity to see, regardless of where the case may stand today and uh, what's going on with the Supreme Court opinion and where things may go from here, uh, there was a jury that was in panel that heard that evidence and those facts, and they came to a, a resounding conclusion uh, in convicting this individual. And so politics, uh, you know, I, I, I had the, the, for, the good fortune of never needing to worry about politics. And that's normal for a lot of blind prosecutors. And I don't imagine, well, when did you graduate law school? I graduated law school in 2012. All right. So a bunch of stuff happened back in 2004 when Andrea Constant got raped in Montgomery County, 2005 when Bruce Castor Jr. not only turned down the case, but ended up giving Cosby a get-out-of-jail-free card, according to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. But then it was 2015, I believe you were in the DA's office, when Bruce Castor said, I want my old job back. And he ran against Kevin Steele. And at the heart of that campaign, when you had to be a young deputy DA in the office, was the Bill Cosby case and whether Bruce Castor had screwed it up or not. Am I right? Well, like I said, certainly people tried to inject that as an issue. But I mean, uh, during something... the election of 2015. Right. That's what I was just going to say. Right. I mean, it came up during the case where, you know, uh, the defense certainly raised that as an issue. It was talked about uh, in the campaign. And I mean, the, the public record on that, I think, speaks for itself um, in the sense that there were people talking about it um, as it relates to the, the prosecution itself. Um, there really wasn't any any aspect of, of politics that came into it. Right, I think is but what... it comes up in the appellate decision, and I found out in researching a column I wrote for the Colorado Sun that right before that November election in 2015, Andrea Constand, who was pissed off at Bruce Castor Jr. for disparaging her, etc., she filed a civil lawsuit against him the week before the election. That's pretty unusual. Well, certainly it's unusual to have um, a crime victim sue a former elected DA for defamation. He ended up countersuing her, actually. After he and lost, I know, saying, you made yeah, me lose. Yeah, and I know that the case was resolved. Um, it, no, his that, case got tossed and her right. case got settled. I don't know if she yeah, got good correct. money or not. Do you? Uh, I do not know that. Um, I'm sure that there's uh, some aspect of confidentiality associated with that agreement. And again, that was an aspect of, of the criminal prosecution just because it existed. But to my recollection, I don't think it ever really came into, came into trial. But again, a lot of the aspects surrounding what um, just then elected DA in 2004 and 2005 may have done or may not have done with the criminal defendant, I know we're, we're a big part of that defamation case. Um, so I, I do know that much. Well, it turns out the biggest moment in the last trial was pretrial proceeding that argued on behalf of Cosby that he had this get-out-of-jail-free card. Bruce Castor Jr. had promised me this and that. And lo and behold, on Cosby's side was Bruce Castor Jr. And who did... Kevin Steele designate to cross-examine the former prosecutor of Montgomery County? Who was that, Stu Ryan? 
<laughs> that would be me, yeah. Oh, man, what a day that must have been. Did it last a whole day or more than a day? Tell us about it. His testimony, the, the former elected DA, his testimony lasted an entire day. Um, my recollection is that his direct examination took most of the morning and then most of the afternoon into, um, you know, I want to say early evening, you know, after the normal close of court uh, was taken up by the by the cross-examination. You have a, certainly an interesting experience. Um, I remember when Kevin spoke to me about it and uh, assigned me to handle it. It was not too, too far in advance of the hearing, but enough time certainly to prepare. Um, and I, uh, you know, I just poured myself into into the, the case at that stage in terms of trying to prepare for the cross-examination. And really, the, there were just many different statements that were made by the former elected DA as it relates to what he might have done. And, you know, you keep using the term get out of jail free card, which I think, you know, can make a lot of sense to people. But frankly, if there had been literally a get out of jail free card, maybe this thing would have been a little bit easier to unwind, but um, there just wasn't. And ultimately the the trial judge, I think, as you know, made a credibility determination that no such agreement or promise was ever uh, ever actually made uh, between the former elected DA and the criminal defendant in this case. What was the name of the trial court judge again? His name was Judge, and Stephen, judge Stephen T. O'Neill. And that guy loved you. You totally persuaded him. You blew up Bruce Castor Jr. I bet you made a monkey out of him, and you had to feel good about that. That allowed the case to move forward, Cosby's guilt to be established. That was the linchpin. And then the appellate court pulls the rug out from under you. That had to be disappointing. Well, look, I mean, first and foremost, as it relates to that first hearing, uh, the cross-examination of the former elected DA, um, you know, certainly was significant, but it wasn't the only aspect of that hearing. Kevin Steele and uh, our other co-prosecutor, Kristen Fedden, um, both, you know, uh, all three of us, I should say, lifted the load in that hearing. There were multiple witnesses, multiple critical aspects of it. Uh, you know, the argument ultimately in front of Judge O'Neill that convinced him, I believe, was uh, was done on the part of, uh, of DA Steele. And so uh, all three of us and the, the support staff and team that we had behind us, not just for that day, uh, but for every day moving forward up until conviction and even up through the appellate process, everyone played a huge part in that. But to get to your uh, question, you know, it was satisfying to have the result that we did in the trial court, especially when the trial judge makes a credibility determination like that, because typically speaking, a credibility determination where a judge says, I'm going to believe this witness over this witness or these witnesses over these witnesses uh, is, is very significant because appellate courts will almost never overturn those. Um, and in fact, the superior court, the intermediate appellate court in Pennsylvania, did just that in their opinion and went with the credibility determination that the trial judge made after, you know, physically seeing the former elected DA testify and hearing all the evidence. But certainly it was, uh, it was disappointing to see the Supreme Court's opinion more than anything else from the perspective of uh, being an advocate for survivors of abuse. I understand that the Supreme Court has a job and they make legal determinations and they write opinions. And as a lawyer, you understand that that's part of the process. 
it's not, I don't think, as easily understood for survivors of abuse to see a case wind its way through the appellate process and you have what you think is a, a sound result in the, in, in the form of a jury conviction uh, that can mean so much, not just to Andre Constant, not just to Heidi and the other uh, prior bad act witnesses that testified, but so many people both directly involved in the case as other witnesses that we interviewed or people that have been victimized as well, but the people outside of this case, you know, just individuals who saw this as a statement that, um, that the judicial system was ready to, to believe you and to hear you and to know that there were going to be people out there that saw this decision and saw it as undercutting great work that had been done over the last you know several years in particular was disappointing. I'm hopeful that that's not what this is going to be taken to be. I'm, I'm hopeful that everything that was done and, and all the progress that was made as a result of the criminal conviction and the facts and the evidence that we put in front of that jury and the decision that that jury made and how it can empower um, other survivors of assault. I'm, I'm certainly hopeful that that's not undone by any single action, including a judicial opinion. Uh, but that's really when I when I say disappointment, the first thought that came to my mind when I read it. I can imagine. But in retrospect, I think you've nailed it. Heidi is calmed down from last week. I tried to explain it to her as an attorney. You and I are lawyers in Craig's Lawyers Lounge. I can't stand Bruce Castor Jr. I've sized him up. I hope you made a monkey out of him, but... In the wake of this appellate reversal, he's been crowing, saying, look, I'm the guy who set all of this in motion. I'm the guy who tricked Cosby into incriminating himself. Andrea Constant should be thanking me every moment of her life. So should these other victims. What would be your response to Bruce Castor Jr. if he said that? And he has been saying that on Philadelphia TV. You're probably aware of it. I I can't say that I've specifically seen or heard that. Um, again, I think what's important from my perspective is that the substance of, of what this case means, the facts and the truth of it, still stand. Nothing about the decision from the Supreme Court has changed that. And uh, frankly, you know, I can't I can't speak to anything specific to the former elected DA. Like I said, not necessarily having heard everything, but. I would hope that anyone who's interested in justice, anyone who's interested in the truth, anyone who's interested in supporting survivors of abuse of any form from any time period in their life would never take joy in uh, seeing the sorts of reactions that survivors have had from this decision. Um, and like I said, you know, some people feeling like the rug was pulled out from under them a bit, although I'm hopeful that, that is not, those aren't going to be feelings that remain. I would just be hopeful that, that no one would ever take any sort of solace or joy in, in something like that. And, you know, I can only say that my understanding is that there's, you know, certain legislatures out here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that are trying to do everything they can to ensure that to the extent that they're was some sort of agreement, which, like I said, based on the evidence in front of the trial court, that trial judge said there wasn't. But to the extent that there was, that, that something like that never happens again, that a powerful person can't be uh, allowed to to get away under any circumstances, especially when the victim isn't consulted um, and when, uh, you know, it doesn't help make the community any safer. 
I noticed you won't even say Bruce Castor's name. It must have been a shock for you to see him up there with the national, international spotlight defending Donald Trump when he was accused in his second impeachment trial. Am I right? You won't even say his name. Is it because you loathe the guy or you just don't want to dignify him? Oh, no, I, I wouldn't say that. I don't really have a personal opinion one way or the other. Um, you know, as it relates to the impeachment proceedings, um, it was it was certainly interesting to see uh, because it's one of those circumstances where you're never sure how one person finds the other. Uh, and so just having had my experiences um, with him, it, it was, like I said, interesting to uh, to see that decision made. And then obviously, um, you know, the nation at that stage got to see how uh, how it played out. How inept he was. And I would suggest that when Bruce Castor ran against your former boss and friend Kevin Steele, Kevin Steele was a Democrat in a collar community in Philly. We have those kind of DA races. Bruce uh, uh, Bruce Castor was the Republican opposition. So Trump probably said, hey, is there a Republican who can stand me, who doesn't mind all these allegations about me grabbing women? Hey, Bruce Castor, what about him? He'll do anything. And he did. So that's how I imagine they got a hold of him. Yeah, and like I said, I'm not, I'm not totally sure. Um, I think I remember reading something that there may have been some sort of a, a family connection um, where there was a, a cousin or brother or brother-in-law or something along those lines that somehow some family member of one of them connected them to each other. Uh, but like I said, I'm not, I'm not totally sure how that all worked out. Well, let's talk about Andrea Constant because I've had, you know, I, I just have been thinking about her former uh, accomplished basketball player. I think she played at Arizona. Then she played some professionally. She had an athletic job at Temple where Bill Cosby was a big deal. But her tenaciousness, and she got some great lawyers, and they were part of that hearing that uh, involved Castor. The, the, the unforgivable thing about Castor, even if he made this bad decision, was his unwillingness to communicate with Andrea Constand, uh, the way he belittled her, the way he disrespected her attorneys. Can you talk about that? Talk about Andrea Constand and her lawyers. What do you think about those people? Well, I couldn't speak more highly of, uh, you know, all three of them, really. I can tell you, going back to that first hearing that we were talking about, um, both B.B. Kivitz and Dolores Troiani, who are Andrea's lawyers, testified and I can especially remember a portion of uh, Dolores's testimony where I don't think that the attorney representing uh, the criminal defendant had any idea what hit her. When, uh, you know, Dolores had the opportunity to talk about her own experiences, about being the first woman uh, in the county where she was a prosecutor prosecuting a rape case and how people looked at rape cases back then and how it was all about what did someone wear and what did they say and what did they do and you're not allowed to use the words penis and vagina and kind of comparing that to where we were now and the just power that she testified with really kind of shook the room and again part of their testimony and part of that first hearing centered around a lot of statements um, that were made in emails 
where the former DA had was writing to then DA Furman saying, you know, I, I'd run this deal past Andre and her lawyers. They were in agreement with it. They wanted it. This is how we decided to do it together. Both lawyers for Andre testified that just never happened. Um, the former DA was testifying that he had written in the email that he said he did it himself, but then he said in his testimony that he delegated it to then DA Furman, who was the first assistant at the time, and everything kind of got jumbled up, and it, I think, became apparent, especially, again, to the trial judge, and, you know, one of the things that was part of his findings uh, were these inconsistencies in how things were dealt with. Um, one thing from my mind's eye and my recollection, and I think the record of the case, that was not inconsistent. That was consistent from day one through was unfortunately the way that Andrea was treated in 2004 and 2005. Um, her attorney, uh, Dolores Trajani, testified that they were only informed of the decision. I believe they received maybe a fax of the press release and then immediately were confronted by media, um, news media with cameras and lights and micro microphones outside of, uh, outside her office. Um, but they didn't even have the chance to speak to Andrea. I recall that, um, the lead detective at the time from Cheltenham, uh, Sergeant Rick Schaefer, had only learned about the decision, you know, shortly after it happened, and he was told not to speak about it um, <clears throat> until a certain period of time. When this press release got issued, he desperately tried to reach Andrea, which really anyone with any level of humanity who's making a decision like that, when you're a prosecutor making a decision about whether or not you are going to proceed forward with a sexual assault case, whether that involves the most powerful celebrity in the nation or the world at the time or anyone else right off the street, you have an obligation to sit down and talk to the survivor of abuse, to explain your decision, to answer their questions, to make sure that they understood every aspect of your investigation and everything you did to prove the case, um, that you did everything you could to keep the community safe and to ensure that they have their voice heard. And Andrea didn't get that. And one of the most incredible things about her is that when she was reapproached, when this case was reopened for uh, the second or the subsequent investigation um, to learn about all this new and different information that was coming out, as well as to review everything that had been done in 2005, was that she could have said no. She could have walked away. She was living her life in Canada. She had been treated in a way that no person should ever have to be treated, especially a survivor of assault. Um, and, and she could have just said, no, thanks. And that would have been that. Um, but again, I go back to what I said to you at the very beginning of this. I was told when I was hired in the DA's office that my job is to do the right thing for the right reason. And that's really what Andrea was about. And her, I think one of her guiding principles throughout this process was that she cooperated with us because she wanted to see the right thing done. I'll tell you what, you've dedicated your life to helping victims. You're in private practice at Laffey, Bucci, and Kent, a law firm dedicated to representing victims back in the Philly area. You do the kind of civil work that Constance lawyers did back in the day, and if they would have been approached by Castor, they could have informed him, Look, at deposition, if he takes the Fifth Amendment, it will be an adverse inference against him, and that will be 
really just fine, you know. So um, it, was that brought up during the course of the hearing? And how do you think about it now that you do civil justice work? Yeah, absolutely. That was, uh, you know, one of the primary arguments that, that I know Dolores and BB were advancing during their testimony. And one of the arguments that we advanced during argument before the judge and then again in front of the Superior Court and Supreme Court, which is that in a civil context, it's, it's great for your case if the defendant invokes his Fifth Amendment privileges, because what's going to happen is that he's going to allow the judge at the end of the day to look the jury in the face and say, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, you can presume for the answer to every question that he's invoking his Fifth Amendment on that whatever the answer is, it would hurt him. It would hurt his case. It's what's called an adverse inference. And yes, yeah, so that, that was something that was brought up. And really, I go back to what I do now. It's like you said, I, I work at a law firm in a, in a practice group with all of us are former prosecutors and from both Montgomery County and, and other counties in the area and our office, our main office in Philadelphia, we have cases all over the country, including Colorado. And I see that time and time again in cases that we deal with, because oftentimes our cases arise out of criminal prosecutions. And we have individuals who are invoking their Fifth Amendment right, and uh, that can be hugely beneficial to a civil case. And it was always one of those things in the context of, uh, of the Cosby prosecution that just didn't make too much sense. Um, and again, like I said, Dolores and Beebe both testified to that very, very clearly. Um, and again, in terms of what I do now, uh, this was actually the first time that I really learned a civil practice like the one that I have now even existed. Um, I loved being in the DA's office. I loved being a prosecutor. I loved advocating for survivors of abuse and never knew where my life would lead me. But um, it was actually through them that I learned about this sort of work. And then came to know the firm where I am now, which, like I said, we're in a practice group that all we do are, are sexual assault cases representing plaintiffs civilly against uh, primarily institutions, but sometimes individuals. And, uh, yeah, getting back to, to your point, like I said, having someone invoke the Fifth Amendment can be really, really beneficial to the case. I've done a little of everything. I was 16 years a prosecutor. Now I do. Uh, your kind of work. I love suing on behalf of rape victims, but I do a little criminal defense too. And it seems to me, putting myself in the shoes of Cosby's criminal defense lawyers, when they met Bruce Castor and he was willing to put out that signed press release, in effect promising no prosecution if he just testifies at a deposition, well, then I would leap on that. I'd say, wow, Bill, there's great break for you. We're going to rely on this promise. Now you testify. I'm sure they didn't expect him to testify that he gave quaaludes to a bunch of women, but he did that. And then their argument was, you can never use that against him. It was used against him at the trial that you and your colleagues prosecuted. The Supreme Court said, ah, violation. He gets out of jail free now. Of course, he already did three years. But don't you think the smart, well-paid Cosby defense lawyers saw that opportunity and they leapt on it? I think that if the circumstances were to unfold the way that you described, that any attorney, smart or otherwise, would have that in writing. 
But did I describe the Pactron, or do I have it sort of bright? No, no. I mean, you you have it right according to one version of events that was presented. That's for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, like I said, you go back and there were just multiple different versions of events. I think the first was in a newspaper article where it was described as uh, some sort of uh, a, a written declaration, I believe. And then there were emails to then D.A. Furman where there was a description that uh, there could be a prosecution um, as long as the deposition wasn't wasn't used. There were other statements that uh, there could not be a prosecution. There were statements that uh, there was no promise or agreement made. Rather, it was just a decision made by a prosecutor, which, again, you go back to the idea of prosecutorial discretion. is something that happens day in and day out across the country um, <clears throat> that prosecutors make decisions not to charge people and that doesn't necessarily make it binding. So, I mean, there were, like I said, there were different versions that were, uh, you know, part of different aspects of the case. Right, but, but Bruce Kapp kept versions. bragging, yeah. I'm the mastermind, I played a game of chess, I'm so smart. And even the appellate court, the Supreme Court, the final word on the subject, here's a quote from that opinion. The end result is exactly what Casker intended. Cosby gave up his rights and Constan received significant financial relief. So I I know you don't necessarily agree with it. What is your uh, feeling now about the opinion? Do you think the Supreme Court bent over backwards for Cosby? Is it political? I don't know Pennsylvania politics or as Supreme Court judges elected, appointed. How does that work? I can't say much about Pennsylvania politics myself. Um, uh, judges in Pennsylvania across the board are elected. Um, it's, it, it is interesting when you actually look at all three opinions. So the majority opinion, then there was an opinion concurring and dissenting, and then a dissenting opinion. And what's interesting about it is given the number of versions of events that were presented to the trial court, it's almost like each opinion chose one version of those events. The dissenting opinion went strictly with the credibility determination of the trial court, which is traditionally how it goes. Uh, One of the other dissenters, the concurring and dissenting opinion, talked about the conflict and statements about, well, he said that it was a promise, then he said it wasn't a promise, then he said uh, that you could prosecute as long as the deposition wasn't used in the different versions. And then the majority the way the opinion reads says that they gave deference to the trial court's credibility determination, um, but in the end, they made the decision that they did in terms of uh, reversing the conviction, despite that that credibility determination based on on their legal review of the case. Um, but one of the other interesting things I think about the concurring dissenting opinion by uh, a man named Justice Doherty. Uh, is the danger that he foresees uh, with the Supreme Court not expressly rejecting to the extent that there was this arrangement actually made. Without the Supreme Court expressly rejecting it, he had great concerns about what this could mean. Does this mean that every time a prosecutor decides not to charge a case that a criminal defendant may say, look, I relied on that to be an ultimate promise. And there are real, real concerns that go along with that. Like I said uh, a short while ago, that's something that I know certain legislators and legislators in uh, in Pennsylvania are trying to address by writing laws that are going to, you know, prohibit something like this from ever happening to the extent that it happened in the first place. 
Do you think it would have been the same vote in favor of the defendant getting a full release if Cosby would have been Joe Blow, 35-year-old serial sex offender, instead of Bill Cosby, man in his mid-80s? Don't you have to wonder about that? Do you think it would have been the same ruling? Well, I think we could probably, we can certainly agree that this issue probably never comes up because, uh, you know, as you described, Joe Blow from the street doesn't get any sort of special treatment, which whether you believe there was some promise or not, if you believe it, that's pretty indicative of, of special treatment being made, especially when the victim is not consulted and it's done sort of outside the traditional systems. You know, as, as it relates to appellate opinions, I, I wouldn't really be able to say. I just, I just don't know um, whether there, there would be any difference. I would hope that any court, trial court, reviewing court, whatever the case may be, would look at every individual the same, um, you know, and equally. Right. We hope for that. One thing that endured, it surprised me reading the appellate opinion, how they went through all the 404B evidence, the evidence of similar bad transactions to prove modus operandi, sometimes known as method of operation. You did that beautifully, and they recounted it in the opinion, but ultimately they said, we don't have to decide whether that was appropriate or not because we're throwing it out for this other reason. And I'm thinking, well, why did you bring it up then? But two, I'm thinking, you know, there is no more valuable evidence in uh, a sex assault case because serial sex offenders have methods of operating. And to the extent you can prove that, it's dynamite evidence. And at least the appellate opinion didn't throw that out. You do it for a living now in civil practice. Wouldn't you agree that 404B, similar bad acts, that's devastating to a defendant, and to me, it's fair, right? Yeah, and I I would agree that it can be very powerful evidence um, for anyone looking for silver lining, so to speak, from the Supreme Court opinion. Um, that could potentially be one of them that they did not touch or alter the decisions that were made with respect to prior bad acts evidence, which, uh, like we both said, can be critical and powerful to a prosecution or to civil litigation. And so that's, that's standing law right now with the Superior Court has had to say on that issue. And I think it's really important, especially as our, you know, society comes to grips with um, the issues surrounding sexual violence that, that we've all come to better learn and understand as a, as a whole, especially over the past several years, that um, this if this can happen more than once to uh, more than one person, it can happen over periods of time that people don't always report right away, and it's normal to not report all uh, right away. Statistically, most people don't even report in the first place. Um, and so all the things that we were able to, I think, establish with those prior bad act witnesses and like I was sharing with Heidi, having the jury get the chance to see so many different women with similar accounts, even though they as individuals could be different and unique, um, that the accounts were so similar and especially seeing how they were able to testify and how the trauma, even though it evidenced itself in different ways, how it still existed even decades later, to hear from some people testify credibly and getting to look them in the eye and believe 
that they didn't tell anybody about this for decades. And that doesn't mean that it didn't happen because there's very good reason for why they didn't tell it and to have a jury believe people like that and for uh, us to all have, you know, a, a public showing of a jury believing that I think is really important. Um, and so, you know, having that sort of evidence in any case can be critical in this particular case. I thought it was uh, important for the jury to see that. The judge limited you to five similars, and you selected Heidi Thomas. We'll get to how you selected her, but how many similars did you have to work from? What was your pool of possible similars? Fifty, a hundred, more than that? Uh, my recollection is that it was uh, upward of 60. I don't specifically remember the number, but that's my recollection of it. And then we, we filed one motion during the first trial because the case got tried twice. We filed a, a motion during the first trial where I think we thought or sought 13 uh, prior bad act witnesses. I believe during in advance of the second trial, the motion asked for 19 prior bad act witnesses. And then you were limited to five by court order. How did you select Heidi Thomas and the others? We were, in a sense, limited by the numbers. The judge's decision was that we could call uh, potentially five over a certain period of time. Um, so he identified a number of years that he determined based on his analysis of everything would be the most relevant. And I believe in terms of the pool of those individuals, it was something like maybe seven or eight. Um, and we kind of went through the process of working with each individual and trying to determine not just who is actually capable of getting here and, you know, I mean, physically getting here and testifying and being available for it, but of all these, of this larger group of women that have very strikingly similar accounts of all of those who are the absolutely most strikingly similar. Um, and that's, more or less how that assessment came down internally for us. It's such an honor to be able to speak with you. I contacted the Montgomery County DA's office. I don't think Kevin Steele is doing any interviews. He released uh, a statement, and then you are no longer with the prosecutor's office, and I got your name, and you've been a great guest. Have you been doing a lot of interviews about the Cosby case? I've been doing a few here and there. Um, always happy to, to talk about the case. Um, and I also will, you know, speak on um, what I do now in terms of the civil litigation representing survivors of assault and abuse. But in, in recent days, I've, I've been doing some uh, interviews related to the Cosby well, case. Well, that's yeah. good. I think your voice is valuable, and I admire what you do for a living. And for all my Colorado listeners, tell us your Colorado connection. Well, uh, I mentioned that my, my law firm does handle cases all over the country. We have uh, a handful in Colorado. Kind of more personally, my uh, uncle actually moved out to uh, Colorado long before I was born, um, but he's been out there for my entire life uh, in Littleton uh, with his family. Um, and so we always get out. Uh, I should say we love to get out there when we can, uh, which we do more often. 
Um, <clears throat> but yeah, they're, they're in Littleton. So I always, uh, enjoy the opportunity to come visit Colorado and get to visit with them and, and just see the state because it really is, it's incredible and, uh, a whole lot different than what we have out here in Pennsylvania. That's for sure. Right. We don't have hurricanes coming up the coast. I don't know how bad Philly got it, but I know New York got chamaliad, as they say in Yiddish. But here, here's the thing. Um, I hope you get out here. And another Philly guy has liked to come to Colorado. That was Bill Cosby, who used to play Southeast Denver, not far from Littleton at the turn of this century on Hamden. And along the way, because I know you studied this case, you heard about not just Heidi Thomas, who testified, but Barbara Bowman and Beth Ferrier, other Colorado women. And they all were part of a talent agency run by a lady named Joe Farrell. Did you investigate that? We, it was certainly an aspect of the case that came up. I wouldn't go so far as to say that we investigated it. Um, other than to, you know, look at that during part of the investigation uh, involving Heidi Thomas and just kind of reviewing uh, what information she had reported to us and like any other sort of sexual assault investigation, what can we corroborate? Uh, because obviously we believed what she told us, you know, her word, any the word of any survivor of abuse in Pennsylvania is sufficient to convict someone. That was really our starting point because she was a credible witness and then just doing what we could to, to corroborate. So we looked at it in, in that respect. But, you know, whether it was uh, the Joe Farrell Modeling Agency or any other number of individuals or institutions that were involved in this case and came up in terms of, uh, you know, being involved in different incidents of abuse, it was really something that drove home for me, something that I know very well now for my work, which is that predators, especially serial predators, almost never work alone. And you mentioned Joe Farrell, and, and I know that uh, Heidi Thomas was associated with her agency, and I believe Barbara Bowman was as well, and I believe also at least a third individual. Beth Ferrier. Um, Beth Ferrier, yeah. Um, but it wasn't just that modeling agency. I mean, you look at the William Morris agency, and during the first trial, uh, one of our prior bad act witnesses, or the prior bad act witness in that case, was actually um, a secretary for one of Cosby's uh, agents. And she testified that he sexually assaulted her. And when she eventually wasn't able to work because of the trauma that she was suffering as, as a result of the sexual assault, she went through a workman's comp proceeding, testified under oath in a deposition during workman's comp uh, um, deposition about what happened to her, about what he had done to her, about how it affected her and how it affected her work. And that got buried. You know, you saw with Andrea's case, uh, I believe it was Marty Singer, the attorney for uh, Cosby at the time, calling her and trying to arrange certain things, you know, an individual from William Morris, uh, I think, again, like some sort of uh, administrative assistant to, to a person there calling and trying to arrange for things. And so in so many of these different cases, not just Heidi's and not just the first prior bad act witness that I mentioned, but in so many cases, you saw that the abuse was perpetrated with the assistance of others or the, or the cover-up of the abuse 
was done with the assistance of others. I mean, the fact that, you know, he testifies in his deposition that he got, I think it was seven prescriptions of quaaludes over a certain period of time um, with the assistance of a doctor who gave him that, that medication knowing full well that he wasn't going to use it for its intended purposes. So, I mean, there's just so many different aspects of so the case when you look at it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like I said, what I've come to, what I saw in the DA's office, not just with the Cosby case, but with others, unfortunately, and what, you know, almost exclusively what we do now is identify and hold accountable, not just individuals who perpetrate abuse, but institutions that enable the abuse. Um, and, you know, I've always felt and feel, you know, more strongly about it now than ever that if you want to take aim at abuse, one of the ways is to take aim at the institutional level, because if you have these powerful institutions protecting abusers or harboring abusers, um, until you take them out uh, or make them change their behaviors, um, unfortunately, these things will continue to happen. And you see it, unfortunately, time and time again with powerful males in our society, not just Cosby and Weinstein and Epstein, but, you know, keep seeing it over and over again. Right. But you proved your case. I'm wondering along the way, did you go back to his comedy albums, his famous riff about Spanish fly and how he liked to use that on women? Did you guys try to get that into evidence? We did, actually. Um, we had uh, filed a motion um, prior to, I believe, both trials to admit that evidence. That was in uh, a motion along with a couple other aspects uh, or a couple other pieces of evidence that went to prior bad acts um, and the aspect of the case in terms of his knowledge of, uh, you know, central nervous depressive drugs and his knowledge of um, how he would operate, um, you know, providing substances to uh, to women in terms of, or in order to, to sexually abuse them. So, yeah, we did um, try and uh, enter into, I think it was a Larry King interview that he had done where he discussed Spanish fly. I think there might've been some references in maybe a book or a comedy routine that he had done as well. But I think what we specifically tried to get in was the, uh, the Larry King interview. No, we, we have the comedy routine and we can play it, but I'm wondering what was the ruling? Did the judge allow it in? The judge did not allow it in. No. Spanish fly was the thing that all boys uh, at, from age 11 on up to death, <laughs> we will still be searching for Spanish fly. That's right. and, and, and what was the old, the old story was, if you, you took a little in. drop, no, it was on the head of a pin. pin. That's right. Drop it, it in, in Coca-Cola. Don't matter. It doesn't make it. And the girl would drink it. And, and she's yours. Hello, America. <laughs> And he got convicted anyway. I think he did a fine job. You know, appellate reversals happen, but in the court of public opinion, everybody knows now that Cosby is a serial rapist. You helped prove it, and uh, I'm proud to have you on the show, Stu. Really appreciate your time. Well, you know, thank you so much. I was really glad that uh, that we were able to connect, especially glad that it uh it happened to be on the same day that Heidi appeared. Again, thank you so much for uh, for giving us the chance to chat and reconnect. And uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for your time. I've appreciated the conversation. Thank you, Stu. We'll be in touch, okay? Good luck to you. Right. Thanks. Take care. Bye. 
Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works. It works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Oh my gosh, Troubadour, what an experience you are having this week. Tell everybody about your adventures and how your obliviousness may have caught up with you. <laughs> Craig, how are you? Um, everything's everything's fine. I, I got stuck in New York there. I guess a hurricane blew through somewhere nearby and dumped like five inches of rain. My dad's basement's flooded. Uh, so that's what I was up early doing. My my uh, flight was canceled last night, and I'm getting out of here in a few hours. But uh, other than that, all is well. Did you have any idea when you went to the airport yesterday to fly home to the Denver area for your busy schedule, your regular Troubadour appointment with me? Did you have any thought in your mind that a hurricane was coming toward New York? <laughs> well, no. And, and And at the time, you know, it wasn't so much, I think, it was uh, winds that what happened at LaGuardia is the power, there was a power outage and it just screwed everything up in terms of, of the planes and get them getting fueled and everything. But, you know, you got to roll with this stuff, Craig. I understand. Some days are like that. And yesterday you had days. one of those days. and I have. I did. Have you ever written a song about days like that? Yeah, it's called Some Days. It's a beautiful uh, some song. Some Days. And by some days just some days just start out bad. Right. And don't you start yeah. that song with your mournful mouth harp, otherwise known as a harmonica? Could well be. The yes. nice thing about the optimism of our troubadour Dave Gunners is that 
it's not a down song. You're telling everybody, just like you started this conversation, oh, well, it's a bad day. It's not your fate. <laughs> you will wake no. up another day and things will be better. That's right. That's right. We got to keep that in mind. That comes, I think that comes with age, you know, and a little bit more perspective than I had as a youth. Something like this would have been, you know, uh, a much more stressful event. So at least there's some good things about getting older. Right. Could you still do that wicked guitar solo that you did on this song? How long Darn ago right. did you record it? Well, that one was 10 years ago. You yeah. put down a wonderful guitar solo. You were wailing. I'm sure that was you. Am I right? Yeah, that course. Yeah. No, I still love to do that. So hopefully I still have the fire. Hopefully you still have the energy when you get home to take your dog walking and all of that. Let me tell you about our show today, Heidi Thomas, and her profession is music. We're going to play some of her music along with your hit some days. But her theory is that music is therapeutic. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely, I can... Craig. Yeah. Well, Every your time music I is sweet guitar. therapy, and I got a kick yes. out of sending you your own song some days to deal with the hassle of trying to get home from the East Coast. But you know what's great about it? You will get home, and Colorado will seem all the better to you, right? That's right. That's right. And I look forward to seeing you. I'll be home this weekend. All right. We'll take a walk with the dog. Safe travels, Troubadour. And thank you for this wonderful song. Some Days by Dave Gunders. Open my eyes to the dawn of another day.
mess I'm wandering around in a wilderness Wait a minute, it don't seem right It's a long, cold journey through the night Won't you 
It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. I like all of this music by Heidi Thomas. I really enjoyed spending time with her, getting the definitive Heidi Thomas interview. She's a brave Colorado kid who stood up to Bill Cosby, and that was not easy. Stu Ryan, thanks a lot for being a dedicated young lawyer. Way to go on the Cosby prosecution. Even if it did get reversed, Dave Gunders is always our troubadour. Some days... What a song. What a perspective. Got to roll with punches in this world. Roll with us next Saturday. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.